With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. There's a perfect illustration of how strongly Toni Morrison feels about estrangement of the language. When she received the Nobel Prize in Stockholm in 1993, in her honor, the American soprano Barbara Hendricks sang Gershwin's Summertime. Morrison refused to applaud what she regarded as the inappropriate use of a patronizing dialect in the lyrics. What a do she was born Chloe Anthony Wofford in Lorain, Ohio in 1931. Just listen to the way biography conspired in the creation of her very first novel, The Bluest Eye. I never lived in a ghetto except a poverty ghetto. <laughs> Where I grew up were lots and lots and lots of poor people, among whom we were among the poorest, but there were not a lot of black people. Even now on the street where my mother and father lived, and those people are still there, their names are Tershek and Golini and Rouse, us, Walfords, and other blacks. It's always been that way. And, Did everybody uh, work in steel? Oh, yeah. Or shipyards, you know. But that was the main industry there. What I'm thinking about is when you were a little girl and in love with books, and you're reading white literature, what does it feel like? What did it feel like, I should say? Could I you find yourself in those books? No, but I wasn't looking for myself. I was looking for other people. But I had this very, very enriched and enriching 
storytelling family where we told stories a lot, jokes, and we were encouraged to tell them ourselves. And they you were told different. dreams. Always. So I was, you know, very much in that. And I was a smart kid in school, so I didn't have any inferiority complexes at all about race or anything else. Was it liberating to have that childhood or the reverse? I don't know. You know, if I have a grandmother who says, a great-grandmother who said people who were not her color were tampered with, and she looked at us with a certain amount of scorn, so I always felt of her prejudice was much more important to me than others, you know. But she was so grand and so tall, and my young uncles stood up when she entered the room, and my grandmother behaved like a girl in her company, and my mother was... I mean, she had this thing. I mean, they all revered her. As a little girl, I thought my mother was God, and then my grandmother was obviously God's God. And then to see my great-grandmother, you see all four of those generations in one room, and to see people that were complete authorities on things defer to the one above and the one above and the one above was amazing to me. In the bluest eye, that was an effort on my part, knowing what I just told you about my great-grandmother, who prized purity of blood, meaning African blood, that's who she was. And then having a friend, and when I was a little girl, who was begging for blue eyes, and she's black as pitch, the most beautiful face you have ever seen in life. <laughs> Which I didn't know that she was beautiful because, you know, eight, what do you know? And I turned to look at her, and that was the first time I saw what I could only call beauty because I recognized that if she had her wish, she would be grotesque. That's what I thought then. Didn't articulate. Eight years old. We may have been nine. I didn't know all. I just knew, oh, my God, that would be terrible, which meant that the opposite thought was lurking there. So as an adult, when I began to write that story, I was really trying to find out what it felt like to feel that way that you really had to be this other thing. See, on the one hand, I had my great-grandmother's notion of being lesser. <laughs> because you were paler than she was? Oh, yeah. Everybody who had lighter skin, she said, were, quote, tampered with, and that was a kind of, you know, it was soiled, sullied in some way. Was that tough for a little girl to deal with? I thought she was right. Well, she was. It had been solid. <laughs> and there she was, you know, this woman with all this white hair and a cane, these high cheekbones. And she's... What happened between the ages? Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, August 29. 2019, so I have been told. Before we get to the book club, once again, 
the Cows 2019 10-year anniversary counter-racist yoga retreat in Florida, December 28th through January 1st, counter-racist workshops, plant-based meals will be spectacular. Obviously, lots of yoga taught by Gus T. Looking forward to having a constructive exchange that has absolutely nothing to do with the so-called holiday. If you're interested in joining us, we have a maximum of 13 slots available. You can drop an email until justice at gmail.com. All of the information has been posted on my blog. You can visit racism-notes.blogspot.com. You'll see the post. Uh, it's got all of the details, the dates, the fees, what we will be doing, a tentative itinerary. You can see some photographs. December 28th, January 1, counter-racist yoga retreat. Looking forward to seeing you there. With that, this is the Cows Book Club. Wow. We started the book club in 2011, excuse me, 2012. Uh, Urugu was our first book. The second book that we read and the very first audio book that we read. When we read Urugu, we did not do an audio book. We uh, read it on our own. So the uh, first time that we actually did uh, an audio book on the cows, it was Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. We had one of our investors. Uh, she requested, hey. Go ahead and do Tar Baby. We almost went back to back with Toni Morrison, but uh, we went a totally different route. And I think we did the Turner Diaries uh, next. Uh, but after all these years, we have finally made it back to Toni Morrison's Tar Baby. Although a bit sad uh, that what brings us back her recent passing at the age of 88. The audio segment that you heard at the beginning that was from the BBC the black self-respect that she showed and even the tackiness. She comes to get the Nobel uh, Prize for Literature and they play Summertime with some tacky Negro slave dialect in it. That's that's to honor the occasion and beloved, I reckon. Anyway, uh, I think folks should enjoy this. Uh, as I said, Tar Baby at the center of this novel. This is fiction. At the center of this novel, not only is racism there, but also Area 8, Cowbell, people's favorite area of activity. Without further ado, we will get started. This is Toni Morrison's 1981 publication, Tar Baby, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Books on Tape presents Tar Baby by Toni Morrison, read by Desiree Coleman. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 He believed he was safe. He stood at the railing of HMS Store Konigsgarten and sucked in great gulps of air, his heart pounding in sweet expectation as he stared at the harbor. Queen of France blushed a little in the lessening light and lowered her lashes before his gaze. Seven girlish white cruisers bobbed in the harbor, but a mile or so down current was a deserted pier. Carefully casual, he went below to the quarters he shared with the others, 
who had gone on shore leave, and since he had no things to gather, no book of postage stamps, no razor blade or key to any door, he merely folded more tightly the blanket corners under the mattress of his bunk. He took off his shoes and knotted the laces of each one through the belt hoop of his pants. Then, after a leisurely look around, he ducked through the passageway and returned to the top deck. He swung one leg over the railing, hesitated, and considered diving head first. But, trusting what his feet could tell him more than what his hands could, changed his mind and simply stepped away from the ship. The water was so soft and warm that it was up to his armpits before he realized he was in it. Quickly he brought his knees to his chest and shot forward. He swam well. At each fourth stroke he turned skyward and lifted his head to make sure his course was parallel to the shore, but away. Although his skin blended well with the dark waters, he was careful not to lift his arms too high above the waves. He gained on the pier and was gratified that his shoes still knocked softly against his hips. After a while, he thought it was time to head inland toward the pier. As he scissored his legs for the turn, a bracelet of water circled them and yanked him into a wide, empty tunnel. He struggled to rise out of it and was turned three times. Just before the urge to breathe water became unmanageable, he was tossed up into the velvet air and laid smoothly down on the surface of the sea. He trod water for several minutes while he regulated his breathing. Then he struck out once more for the pier. Again, the bracelet tightened around his ankles, and the wet throat swallowed him. He went down, down, and found himself not at the bottom of the sea, as he expected, but whirling in a vortex. He thought nothing except, I am going counterclockwise. No sooner had he completed the thought than the sea flattened and he was riding its top. Again he trod water, coughed, spat and shook his head to free his ears of water. When he'd rested, he decided to swim butterfly and protect his feet from the sucking that had approached him both times from his right side. But when he tore open the water in front of him, he felt a gentle but firm pressure along his chest, stomach, and down his thighs. Like the hand of an insistent woman, it pushed him. He fought hard to break through, but couldn't. The hand was forcing him away from the shore. The man turned his head to see what lay behind him. All he saw was water, blood-tinted by a sun sliding into it like a fresh heart. Far away to his right was Stor Konigsgarten, lit fore and aft. His strength was leaving him, and he knew he should not waste it fighting the current. He decided to let it carry him for a while. Perhaps it would disappear. In any case, it would give him time to regain strength. He floated as best he could in water that heaved and pulsed in the ammonia-scented air and was getting darker all the time. He knew he was in a part of the world that had never known and would never know twilight, and that very soon he might be zooming toward the horizon in a pitch-black sea. Queen of France was already showing lights scattered like teardrops from a sky pierced to weeping by the blade tip of an early star. Still, 
the water lady cupped him in the palm of her hand and nudged him out to sea. Suddenly he saw new lights, four of them, to his left. He could not judge the distance, but knew they had just been turned on aboard a small craft. Just as suddenly the water lady removed her hand and the man swam toward the boat anchored in blue water and not the green. As he neared it, he circled. He heard nothing and saw no one. Moving portside, he made out Seabird Two and a three-foot rope ladder gently tapping the bow. He grabbed a rung and hoisted himself up and aboard. Panting lightly, he padded across the deck. There was no trace of the sun and his canvas shoes were gone. He sidled along the deck, his back against the walls of the wheelhouse, and looked into its curved windows. No one was there, but he heard music from below and smelled food cooked with a heavy dose of curry. He had nothing in mind to say if anyone suddenly appeared. It was better not to plan, not to have a ready-made story, because, however tight, prepared stories sounded most like a lie. The sex, weight, the demeanor of whomever he encountered would inform and determine his tale. He made his way aft and cautiously descended a short flight of stairs. The music was louder there and the smell of curry stronger. The farthest door stood ajar and from it came the light, the music, and the curry. Nearer to him were two closed doors. He chose the first. It opened into a dark closet. The man stepped into it and closed the door softly after him. It smelled heavily of citrus and oil. Nothing was clear, so he squatted where he was and listened to what seemed to be radio or record player music. Slowly he moved his hand forward in the dark and felt nothing as far as his arm could reach. Moving it to the right, he touched a wall. He duck-waddled closer to it and sank to the floor, his back against the wall. He was determined to remain alert at all costs, but the water lady brushed his eyelids with her knuckles. He dropped into sleep like a rock. The engine did not wake him. He had slept with the noise of heavier ones for years, nor did the boats list. Before the engines was the forgotten sound of a woman's voice, so new and welcoming it broke his dream life apart. He woke thinking of a short street of yellow houses with white doors, which women opened wide and called out, Come on in here, you honey you, their laughter sprawling like a quilt over the command. But nothing sprawled in this woman's voice. I'm never lonely, it said. Never. The man's scalp tingled. He licked his lips and tasted the salt caked in his mustache. Never? It was another woman's voice, lighter, half in doubt, half in awe. Not at all, said the first woman. Her voice seemed warm on the inside, cold at the edges. Or was it the other way around? I envy you, said the second voice, but it was farther away now, floating upward and accompanied by footsteps on stairs and the swish of cloth, corduroy against corduroy, or denim against denim, the sound only a woman's thighs could make. A delicious autumn invitation 
to come in out of the rain and curl up by the stove. The man could not hear the rest of their talk. They were topside now. He listened a while longer and then stood up slowly, carefully, and reached for the doorknob. The passageway was brightly lit, the music and curry smell gone. Through the space between door jam and door, he saw a porthole, and in it, deep night. Something crashed to the deck, and a moment later rolled to the door saddle where it stopped in a finger of light at his foot. It was a bottle, and he could just make out Bain du Soleil on the label. He did not move. His mind was blank, but on call. He had not heard anyone descend, but now a woman's hand came into view, beautifully shaped, pink nail polish, ivory fingers, wedding rings. She picked up the bottle, and he could hear her soft grunt as she stooped. She stood, and her hand disappeared. Her feet made no sound on the teak boards, but after a few seconds had passed, he heard a door, to the galley perhaps, open and close. He was the only man aboard. He felt it, a minus something which eased him. The two or three, he didn't know how many, women who were handling the boat would soon dock at a private pier where there would be no customs inspector stamping passports and furrowing his brow with importance. The light from the passage allowed him to examine the closet. It was a shelved storage room with a mixture of snorkeling and fishing gear and ship's supplies. A topless crate took up most of the room on the floor. In it were twelve miniature orange trees, all bearing fruit. The man pulled off one of the tiny oranges no bigger than a good-sized strawberry and ate it. The meat was soft, fiberless, and bitter. He ate another, and another. And as he ate, a wide surgical hunger opened up in him. He had not eaten since the night before, but the hunger that cut through him now was as unaccounted for as it was sudden. The boat was underway, and it did not take him long to realize that they were headed out, not for Queen of France after all. But not very far, he thought. Women with polished fingernails who needed suntan oil would not sail off into the night if they were going very far. So he chewed bitter oranges and waited on his haunches in the closet. When the boat finally drew along and the engine was cut, his hunger was no longer formal. It made him squeeze his fingers together to keep from bolting out of the closet toward the kitchen. But he waited until the light footsteps were gone. Then he stepped into the passageway, spotted in two places by moonlight. Topside, he watched two figures moving behind the beam of a heavy-duty flashlight. And when he heard a car's engine start up, he went below. Quickly, he found the galley, but because lights would not do, he patted counter surfaces for matches. There weren't any, and the stove was electric. He opened a little refrigerator and discovered its bottled water and half a lime. Elsewhere, in refrigerator light, he located a jar of Dijon mustard, but nothing of the curry food. The dishes were rinsed, and so was a white carton. The women had not cooked, they had warmed up carry-out food that they'd brought aboard. 
The man ran his finger deep into corners of the white carton and up its sides. Whatever had been left, they must have given to the gulls. He looked in the cupboards. Glasses, cups, dishes, a blender, candles, plastic straws, multicolored toothpicks, and at last a box of Norwegian flatbread. He covered the bread with mustard, ate it, and drank all that was left of the bottled water before going back on deck. There he saw the stars and exchanged stares with the moon, but he could see very little of the land, which was just as well because he was gazing at the shore of an island that, three hundred years ago, had struck slaves blind the moment they saw it. Chapter 1 the end of the world, as it turned out, was nothing more than a collection of magnificent winter houses on Ile de Chevalier. When laborers imported from Haiti came to clear the land, clouds and fish were convinced that the world was over, that the sea-green green of the sea and the sky-blue sky of the sky were no longer permanent. Wild parrots that had escaped the stones of hungry children in Queen of France agreed and raised havoc as they flew away to look for yet another refuge. Only the champion daisy trees were serene. After all, they were part of a rainforest already two thousand years old and scheduled for eternity, so they ignored the men and continued to rock the diamondbacks that slept in their arms. It took the river to persuade them that indeed the world was altered, that never again would the rain be equal and by the time they realized it and had run their roots deeper, clutching the earth like lost boys found, it was too late. The men had already folded the earth where there had been no fold, and hollowed her where there had been no hollow, which explains what happened to the river. It crested, then lost its course, and finally its head. Evicted from the place where it had lived and forced into unknown turf, it could not form its pools or waterfalls, and ran every which way. The clouds gathered together, stood still, and watched the river scuttle around the forest floor, crash headlong into the haunches of hills with no notion of where it was going, until exhausted, ill, and grieving, it slowed to a stop just twenty leagues short of the sea. The clouds looked at each other, then broke apart in confusion. Fish heard their hooves as they raced off to carry the news of the scatterbrained river to the peaks of hills and the tops of the champion daisy trees. But it was too late. The men had gnawed through the daisy trees until, wild-eyed and yelling, they broke in two and hit the ground. In the huge silence that followed their fall, orchids spiraled down to join them. When it was over, and houses instead grew in the hills, those trees that had been spared dreamed of their comrades for years afterward, and their nightmare mutterings annoyed the diamondbacks, who left them for the new growth that came to life in spaces the sun saw for the first time. Then the rain changed and was no longer equal. Now it rained not just for an hour every day at the same time, but in seasons, abusing the river even more. Poor, insulted, broken-hearted river, poor, demented stream. 
Now it sat in one place like a grandmother and became a swamp the Haitians called Saint-de-Vieille. And which is tit it was? A shriveled, fog-bound oval, seeping with a thick black substance that even mosquitoes could not live near. But high above it were hills and vales, so bountiful it made visitors tired to look at them. Bougainvillea, avocado, poinsettia, lime, banana, coconut, and the last of the rainforest's champion trees. Of the houses built there, the oldest and most impressive was L'Arbre de la Croix. It had been designed by a brilliant Mexican architect, but the Haitian laborers had no union and therefore could not distinguish between craft and art. So while the panes did not fit their sashes, the window sills and door saddles were carved lovingly to perfection. They sometimes forgot or ignored the determination of water to flow downhill so the toilets and bidets could not always produce a uniformly strong swirl of water. But the eaves were so wide and deep that the windows could be left open even in a storm and no rain could enter the rooms, only wind, scents, and torn away leaves. The floor planks were tongue and groove, but the hand-kilned tiles from Mexico, though beautiful to behold, loosened at a touch. Yet the doors were plumb, and their knobs, hinges, and locks secure as turtles. It was a wonderful house, wide, breezy, and full of light, built in the days when plaster was taken for granted, and with the sun and the airstream in mind, it needed no air conditioning. Graceful landscaping kept the house just under a surfeit of beauty. Every effort had been made to keep it from looking designed. Almost nothing was askew, and the few things that were had charm. The little island touches here and there, a wash house, a kitchen garden, for example, were practical. At least that was the judgment of discriminating visitors. They all agreed that except for the unfortunate choice of its name, it was the most handsomely articulated and blessedly unrhetorical house in the Caribbean. One or two had reservations, wondered whether all that interior sunlight wasn't a little too robust, and hadn't the owner gone rather overboard with the recent addition of a greenhouse? Valerian Street was mindful of their criticism, but completely indifferent to it. His gray eyes drifted over the faces of such guests like a four o'clock shadow on its way to twilight. They reminded him of the Philadelphia widows who, when they heard he was going to spend the whole first year of his retirement in his island house, said, You'll be back. Six months and you will be bored out of your mind. That was four Decembers ago, and the only things he missed were hydrangeas and the postman. The new greenhouse made it possible to reproduce the hydrangea, but the postman was lost to him forever. The rest of what he loved he brought with him. Some records, garden shears, a 64-bulb chandelier, a light blue tennis shirt, and the principal beauty of Maine. Ferrara Brothers, domestic and international, took care of the rest, and with the help of two servants, the principal beauty and mounds of careful correspondence, he was finally installed for the year on a hill high enough to watch the sea from three sides. Not that he was interested. 
Beyond its providing the weather that helped or prevented the steamers bringing mail, he never gave the sea a thought. And whatever he did think about, he thought it privately in his greenhouse. In the late afternoons, when the heat had to be taken seriously, and early in the morning, he was there. Long before the principal beauty had removed her sleeping mask, he turned the switch that brought the Goldberg variations into the greenhouse. At first, he'd experimented with Chopin and some of the Russians, but the Magnum Rex peonies, overwhelmed by all that passion, whined and curled their lips. He settled finally on Bach for germination, Haydn and Liszt for strong sprouting. After that, all of the plants seemed content with Rompal's Rondo in D. By the time he sugared his breakfast coffee, the peonies, the anemones, and all their kind had heard forty or fifty minutes of music, which nourished them, but set Sidney the butler's teeth on edge, although he'd heard some variety of it every day for forty years. What made it bearable now was that the music was confined to the greenhouse and not swarming all through the house as it often did back in Philadelphia. He could hear it only thinly now as he wiped moisture beads from a glass of iced water with a white napkin. He set it near the cup and saucer and noticed how much the liver spots had faded on his employer's hand. Mr. Street thought it was the lotion he rubbed on nightly, but Sidney thought it was the natural tanning of the skin in this place they had all come to three years ago. Except for the kitchen, which had a look of permanence, the rest of the house had a hotel feel about it, a kind of sooner-or-later-leaving appearance. A painting or two hung in an all-right place, but none was actually stationed or properly lit. The really fine china was still boxed and waiting for a decision nobody was willing to make. It was hard to serve well in the tentativeness. No crystal available. It, too, was closed away in Philadelphia. So a few silver trays had to do for everything from fruit to petty fours. Every now and then, the principal beauty on one of her trips brought back from the States another carton chock full of something Sidney asked for. The blender, the carborundum stone, two more tablecloths. These items had to be carefully selected because they were exchanged for other items that she insisted on taking back to Philadelphia. It was her way of keeping intact the illusion that they still lived in the States but were wintering near Dominique. Her husband encouraged her fantasy by knotting every loose string of conversation with the observation, it can wait till we get home. Six months after they'd arrived, Sidney told his wife that periodic airing of trunk luggage in the sunlight was more habit than intention. They would have to tear down that greenhouse to get him off the island because as long as it was there, he'd be there too. What the devil does he do in there, she had asked him. Relaxes a little, that's all. Drinks a bit, reads, listens to his records. Can't nobody spend every day in a shed for three years without being up to some devilment, she said. It's not a shed, said Sidney. It's a greenhouse, I keep telling you. Whatever you call it. He grows hydrangeas in there and dahlias. If he wants hydrangeas, he should go back home. He hauls everybody down to the equator to grow northern flowers. It's not just that. 
Remember how he liked his study back at the house? Well, it's like that, except it's a greenhouse kind of a study. Anybody build a greenhouse on the equator ought to be shame. This is not the equator. Could have fooled me. Nowhere near it. You mean there's some place on this planet hotter than this? I thought you liked it here. Love it. Then stop complaining. It's because I do love it that I'm complaining. I'd like to know if it's permanent. Living like this, you can't figure nothing. He might pack up any minute and trot off someplace else. He'll be here till he dies, Sidney told her, lest that greenhouse burns up. Well, I'll pray nothing happens to it, she said, but she needn't have. Valerian took very good care of the greenhouse, for it was a nice place to talk to his ghosts in peace while he transplanted, fed, air-layered, rooted, watered, dried, and thinned his plants. He kept a small refrigerator of Blanc de Blancs and red seed catalogs while he sipped the wine. Sometimes he gazed through the little greenhouse panes at the wash house. Other times he checked catalogs, brochures, and entered into ringing correspondence with nurseries from Tokyo to Newburgh, New York. He read only mail these days, having given up books because the language in them had changed so much, stained with rivulets of disorder and meaninglessness. He loved the greenhouse and the island, but not his neighbors. Luckily, there was a night, three years ago, after he'd first settled into tropic life, when he woke up with a toothache so brutal it lifted him out of bed and knocked him to his knees. He knelt on the floor clutching the Billy Blast sheets and thinking, this must be a stroke. No tooth could do this to me. Directly above the waves of pain, his left eye was crying while his right went dry with rage. He crawled to the night table and pressed the button that called Sydney. When he arrived, Valerian insisted on being taken to Queen of France at once, but there was no way to get there. At that hour, fishermen had not even begun to stir, and the launch was twice a week. They owned no boat, and even if they had, neither Sydney nor anyone else could handle it. So the quick-witted butler telephoned the neighbors Valerian hated and got both the use of a 56-foot paleos called Seabird II and the boat skills of the Filipino houseboy. After a daring jeep ride in the dark, an interminable boat ride, and a taxi ride that was itself a memory, they arrived at Dr. Michelin's door at 2 a.m. Sidney banged while the Filipino chatted with the taxi driver. The dentist roared out of the second-floor window. He had been run out of Algeria and thought his door was being assaulted by local blacks whose teeth he would not repair. At last, Valerian, limp and craven, sat in the dentist's chair where he gave himself up to whatever the Frenchman had in mind. Dr. Michelin positioned a needle toward the roof of Valerian's mouth, but seemed to change his mind at the last minute, for Valerian felt the needle shoot straight into his nostril, on up to the pupil of his eye, and out his left temple. He stretched his hand toward the doctor's trousers, hoping that his death grip, the one they always had to pry loose, would be found to contain the crushed balls of a DDS. But before he could get a grip under the plaid bathrobe, the pain disappeared 
and Valerian wept outright, grateful for the absence of all sensation in his head. Dr. Michelin didn't do another thing. He just sat down and poured himself a drink, eyeing his patient in silence. This encounter, born in encouraged hatred, ended in affection. The good doctor let Valerian swallow a little of his brandy through a straw and against his better judgment, and Valerian recognized a man who took his medical oaths seriously. They got good and drunk together that night, and the combination of Novocaine and brandy gave Valerian an expansiveness he had not felt in years. They visited each other occasionally, and whenever Valerian thought of that first meeting, he touched the place where the abscess had been and smiled. It had a comic book quality about it. Two elderly men, drunk and quarreling about Pershing, whom Valerian had actually seen, neither one mentioning then or ever the subject of exile or advanced years, which was what they had in common. Both felt as though they had been run out of their homes. Robert Michelin expelled from Algeria. Valerian Street voluntarily exiled from Philadelphia. Both had been married before, and the long years of a second marriage had done nothing to make either forget his first. The memory of those years of grief in the wake of a termagant was still keen. Michelin had remarried within a year of his divorce, but Valerian stayed a bachelor for a long time and on purpose until he went out for an after-lunch stroll on a wintry day in Maine a stroll he hoped would get rid of the irritable boredom he'd felt among all those food industry appliance reps. His walk from the inn had taken him only two blocks to the main street when he found himself in the middle of a local snow carnival parade. He saw the polar bear, and then he saw her. The bear was standing on its hind feet, its front ones raised in benediction. A rosy-cheeked girl was holding on to one of the bear's forefeet like a bride. The plastic igloo behind them threw into dazzling relief her red velvet coat and the ermine muff she waved to the crowd. The moment he saw her, something inside him knelt down. Now he sat in the December sunlight watching his servant pour coffee into his cup. Has it come? Sir? the salve. Not yet. Sidney removed the lid from a tiny box of saccharin tablets and edged it toward his employer. They take their sweet time. Mail's cut back to twice a week, I told you. It's been a month. Two weeks. Still bothering you? Not right this minute, but they'll start up again. Valerian reached for the sugar cubes. You could be a little less hard-headed about those shoes. Sandals or a nice pair of hirachis all day would clear up every one of them bunions. They're not bunions. They're corns. Valerian plopped the cubes into his cup. Corns, too. When you get your medical degree, call me. Andine baked these? No. Mrs. Street brought them back yesterday. She uses that boat like it's a bicycle. Back and forth, back and forth. Why don't you get one of your own? That thing's too big for her. Can't water ski with it. Can't even dock it in the town. They have to leave it in one place and get in another little boat just to land. 
Why should I buy her a boat and let it sit ten months out of a year? If those nitwits don't mind her using theirs, it's fine with me. Maybe she'd stay the whole year if she had one. Not likely. And I prefer she should stay because her husband's here, not because a boat is. Anyway, tell Andine not to serve them anymore. No good. One of the worst things about being old is eating. First, you have to find something you can eat, and second, you have to try not to drop it all over yourself. I wouldn't know about that. Of course not. You're fifteen minutes younger than I am. Nevertheless, tell Andine no more of these. Too flaky. They fly all over no matter what you do. Croissant's supposed to be flaky. That's as short a dough as you can make. Just tell her, Sidney. Yes, sir. And find out if the boy can straighten those bricks. They are popping up all over the place. He needs cement, he said. No, no cement. He's to pack them down properly. The soil will hold them if he does it right. Yes, sir. Mrs. Street awake? I believe so. Anything else special you going to want for the holidays? No, just the geese. I won't be able to eat a bit of it, but I just want to see it on the table anyway. And some more thalamide. You want yard man to bring you thalamide? He can't even pronounce it. Write a note. Tell him to give it to Dr. Michelin. All right. And tell Andine that half postum and half coffee is revolting. Worse than postum alone. Okay, okay, she thought it would help. I know what she thought, but the help is worse than the problem. That might not be what the trouble is, you know. You are determined to make me have an ulcer. I don't have an ulcer. You have an ulcer. I have occasional irregularity. I had an ulcer. It's gone now, and Postum helped it go. I'm delighted. Did you say she was awake? She was. Could have gone back to sleep, though. What did she want? Want? Yes, want. The only way you could know she was awake is if she rang you up there. What did she want? Towels. Fresh towels. Sydney? She did. Andine forgot to... What were the towels wrapped around? Why you keep thinking that? Everything she drinks, you see her drink. A little dinner wine, that's all, and hardly more than a glass of that. She never was a drinker. You the one. Why are you always trying to make her into one? I'll speak to Jade. What could Jade know that I don't? Nothing, but she's as honest as they come. Come on now, Mr. Street, it's the truth. Valerian held a pineapple quarter with his fork and began cutting small, regular pieces from it. All right, said Sidney. I'll tell you. She wanted Yard Man to stop by the airport before he comes Thursday. What for, pray? A trunk? She's expecting a trunk. It's been shipped already, she said, and ought to be here by then. What an idiot. Sir? Idiot. Idiot. Mrs. Street, sir? Mrs. Street, Mr. Street, you, Andine, everybody. This is the first time in 30 years I've been able to enjoy this house, really live in it. 
not for a month or a weekend, but for a while, and everybody is conspiring to ruin it for me. Coming and going, going and coming, it's beginning to feel like 30th Street Station. Why can't everybody settle down, relax, have a nice, simple Christmas? Not a throng, just a nice, simple Christmas dinner. She gets a little bored, I guess. Got more time than she can use. Insane. Jade's here. They get on like schoolgirls, it seems to me. Am I wrong? No, you're right. They get along fine. Like each other's company, both of them. They don't like it enough to let it go at that. Apparently, we are expecting more company. And since I am merely the owner and operator of this hotel, there is no reason to let me know about it. Can I get you some toast? And you. You have finally surprised me. What else have you been keeping from me? Eat your pineapple. I am eating it. I can't stand here all morning. You got corns. I got bunions. If you won't take my advice, bunions are the consequence. I know my work. I'm a first-rate butler, and I can't be first-rate in slippers. You know your work, but I know your feet. Tom McCann will be the death of you. I never wore Tom McCann's in my life, never. In 1929, I didn't wear them. I distinctly recall at least four pairs of decent shoes I've given you. I prefer my bunions to your corns. Ballets don't cause corns. If anything, they prevent them. It's the perspiration that causes them. When, see, gotcha. That's exactly what I've been telling you. Philadelphia shoes don't work in the tropics. Make your feet sweat. You need some nice harachis. Make your feet feel good. Free them up so they can breathe. The day I spend in harachis is the day I spend in a straitjacket. You keep on hacking away at your toes with a razor and you'll beg for a straitjacket. Well, you won't know about it because your Tom McCann bunions are going to put you in a rocker for the rest of your life. Suit me fine. And me, maybe then I could hire somebody who wouldn't keep things from me. Sneak post them into a good pot of coffee, saccharin in the lime pie, and don't think I don't know about the phony salt. Health is the most important thing at our age, Mr. Street. Not at all. It's the least important. I have no intention of staying alive just so I can wake up and skip down the stairs to a cup of postum in the morning. Look in the cabinet and get me a drop of medicine for this stuff. Cognac's not medicine. Sydney moved toward the sideboard and bent to open one of its doors. At 70, everything's medicine. Tell Andine to quit it. It's not doing a thing for me. Sure don't help your disposition, none. Exactly. Now, very quietly and very quickly, tell me who this company is. No company, Mr. Street. Don't antagonize an old man reduced to postum. It's your son. Michael's not company. Valerian put his cup carefully onto the saucer. She told you that? That Michael was coming? No, not exactly. But so Yardman would know what to look for, she told me where the trunk was coming from and what color it was. Then it's coming from California. It's coming from California. And it's red. And it's red. Fire red. 
with Dick Gregory for president stickers pasted on the sides, and a bullseye painted on the lid, and a lock that only closes if you kick it, but opens with a hairpin, and the key is... Valerian stopped and looked up at Sidney. Sidney looked at Valerian. They said it together. At the top of Kilimanjaro. Some joke, said Valerian. Pretty good for a seven-year-old. They were quiet for a while. Valerian chewing pineapple, Sidney leaning against the sideboard. Then Valerian said, Why do you suppose he hangs on to it? A boy's camp footlocker. Keep his clothes in. Foolish. All of it. The trunk, him, and this visit. Besides, he won't show. She thinks so this time. She's not thinking. She's dreaming, poor baby. Are you sure there was nothing between those towels? Here comes the lady. Ask her yourself. A light clicking of heels on Mexican tile was getting louder. When the boy goes to the airport, whispered Valerian, tell him to pick up some Maylocks on the way back. Well, he said to his wife, what have we here, Wonder Woman? Please, she said, it's too hot. Good morning, Sidney. Morning, Mrs. Street. Then what is that between your eyebrows? Frownies. Beg pardon? Frownies. Sidney walked around the table, tilted the pot, and poured coffee soundlessly into her cup. You have trouble frowning? asked her husband. Yes. And that helps. Supposed to. She held the cup in front of her lips and closed her eyes. The steam floated into her face while she inhaled. I am confused. Not senile, mind you, just confused. Why would you want to frown? Margaret took another breath of coffee steam and opened her eyes very slowly. She looked at her husband with the complete dislike of a natural late sleeper for a cheerful early riser. I don't want to frown. Frownies don't make you frown. They erase the consequences of frowning. Valerian opened his mouth but said nothing for a moment. Then... But why don't you just stop frowning? Then you won't need to paste your face with little pieces of tape. Margaret sipped more coffee and returned the cup to its saucer. Lifting the neckline of her dress away from her, she blew gently into her bosom and looked at the pale wedges Sidney placed before her. Undine had left the spiky skin on the underside deliberately, just to hurt and confuse her. I thought we'd have... Mangoes. Sidney removed the fruit and hurried to the swinging doors. What gets into everybody? The same thing every morning? I wanted pineapple. If you don't, tell Sidney at night what you'd like for breakfast the next morning. That way he can... She knows I hate fresh pineapple. The threads get in my teeth. I like canned. Is that so terrible? Yes, terrible. They tell us what to eat? Who's working for who? Whom? If you give Andine menus for the whole week, that is exactly what she will prepare. Really? 
You've been doing that for 30 years, and you can't even get her to fix you a cup of coffee. She makes you drink postum. That's different. Sure. Sidney returned with a bowl of crushed ice in which a mango stood. The peeling had been pulled back from the shiny fruit in perfect curls. The slits along the pulp were barely visible. Valerian yawned behind his fists, then said, Sidney, can I or can I not order a cup of coffee and get it? Yes, sir. Of course you can. He put down the mango and filled Valerian's cup. See, Margaret? And there's your mango. 425 calories. What about your croissant? 127. God. Margaret closed her eyes, her blue-if-it's-a-boy blue eyes, and put down her fork. Have a grapefruit. I don't want grapefruit. I want mango. Valerian shrugged. Slurp away. But you had three helpings of moose last night. Two. I had two. Jade had three. Oh, well, only two. Well, what do we have a cook for? Even I can slice grapefruit. To wash the dishes. Who needs dishes? According to you, all I need is a teaspoon. Well, someone has to wash your teaspoon. And your shovel. Funny. Very funny. It's true. Margaret held her breath and stuck her fork into the mango. She exhaled slowly as the section came away on the tines. She glanced at Valerian before putting the slice in her mouth. I've never seen anyone eat as much as you and not gain an ounce, ever. I think she adds things to my food, wheat germs or something. At night, she sneaks in with one of those intravenous things and pumps me full of malts. Nobody pumps you full of anything. Or whipped cream, maybe. Sidney had left them discussing calories, and now he was back with a silver tray on which wafer-thin slices of ham tucked into toast baskets held a poached egg. He went to the sideboard and lifted them onto plates. He laid stems of parsley on the right rim and two tomato slices to the left of each plate. He whisked away the fruit bowls, careful not to spill the water from the ice, and then leaned forward with the hot dish. Margaret frowned at the dish and waved it away. Sidney returned to the sideboard, put the rejected dish down, and picked up the other. Valerian accepted it enthusiastically, and Sidney edged the salt and pepper mill an inch or two out of his reach. I suppose you are decorating the house with guests for Christmas? Push that salt over here, will you? Why would you suppose that? Margaret stretched out a hand, a beautifully manicured hand, and passed him the salt and pepper. Her little victory with the mango strengthened her enough to concentrate on what her husband was saying. Because I asked you not to, it follows, therefore, that you would defy me. Have it your way. Let's just spend the holidays all alone in the cellar. We haven't got a cellar, Margaret. You should take a look around this place. You might like it. Come to think of it, I don't believe you've seen the kitchen yet, have you? We've got two. Two kitchens. One is... Valerian, please shut up. But this is exciting. We've been coming here for only 30 years, and already you've discovered the dining room. That's three whole rooms, one every decade. 
First you found the bedroom. That is, I assume you did. It's hard to tell when a wife sleeps separately from her mate. Then, in 1965, I think it was, you located the living room. Remember that? Those cocktail parties? Those were good times. Heights, I'd say. You not only knew the airport and the dock and the bedroom, but the living room as well. Yes, I am having guests for Christmas. Then the dining room. Speak of a find. Dinner for ten, twenty, thirty. Think what's before you in one kitchen, let alone two. We could entertain hundreds, thousands. Michael's coming. I wouldn't put it off any longer if I were you. If we hurry, by the time I'm eighty, we can invite Philadelphia. And a friend of his. That's all. He won't come. I've never had more than twelve people in this house at any one time. His friend will show, and he won't. Again. And I am not a cook, and I never have been. I don't want to see the kitchen. I don't like kitchens. Why work yourself up this way every year? You know he'll disappoint you. I was a child bride, remember? I hadn't time to learn to cook before you put me in a house that already had one, plus a kitchen fifty miles from the front door. Seems to me you did once. You and Ondine giggling away in the kitchen is one of my clearest and fondest memories. Why do you say that? You always say that. It's true. I'd come home and you'd be. Not that. About Michael, I mean, that he won't show up. Because he never has. He never has here, down here in this jungle with nothing to do. No young people, no fun, no music. No music? I mean his kind of music. You surprise me. And so he won't be bored to death. I've invited a friend of his. She stopped and pressed a finger to the frowny between her eyes. I haven't invited anybody down here in years because of you. You hate everybody. I don't hate anybody. Three years it's been. What's the matter with you? Don't you want to see your son anymore? I know you don't want to see anybody else, but your own son. You pay more attention to that fat dentist than you do Michael. What are you trying to prove down here? Why do you cut yourself off from everybody, everything? It's just that I'm undergoing this very big change in my life called dying. Retirement isn't death. A distinction without a difference. Well, I am not dying. I am living. A difference without distinction. And I'm going back with him. Sounds terminal. It might be. Christmas isn't the best time to make decisions like that, Margaret. It's a sentimental holiday full of foolish. Look, I'm going. I don't advise it. I don't care. He's not a little boy anymore. The knapsack, I know, is confusing, but Margaret, he'll soon be thirty. So what? So what makes you think he'll want you to live with him? He will. You're going to travel with him? Go to snake dances? I'm going to live near him, not with him. Near him, it won't work. Why not? Valerian put his palms down on either side of his plate. 
He doesn't care all that much for us, Margaret. You, she said. He doesn't care all that much for you. Whatever you say. Then I can go? We'll see. When he gets here, ask him. Ask him if he wants his mother next door to the reservation in a condominium. He's through with that. The school closed. He's not with them anymore. Oh, he's done the Hopis? Gone on to the Choctaws, I suppose? No, wait a minute. C comes before H. Let me see. Navajos, right? He's not with any tribe. He's studying. What, pray? Environmental something. He wants to be an environmental lawyer. Does he now? Yes. Well, why not? A band manager, shepherd, poet-in-residence, film producer, lifeguard ought to study law. The more environmental, the better. An advantage, really, since he's certainly had enough environments to choose from. And what will you do? Design no-nuke stickers? You can't make me change my mind. It's not a matter of changing it. It's a matter of using it. Let him alone, Margaret. Let him be. You can't do it over. What you want is crazy. No, this is crazy. I live in airplanes now. Nowhere. Not in Philadelphia, where I at least have friends. Not here, boiling under a palm tree with nobody to talk to. You keep saying next month, next month, next month. But you never do it. You never leave. But you do. Whenever you like. Lots of people live in two places. I want to live in one, just one. In October, you said after New Year's, you'll come back. Then when New Year's comes, you'll say after Carnival. If I want to live with you, I have to do it your way, here. I can't keep flying back and forth across the ocean, wondering where I left the Kotex. Anyway, I'm going back with Michael, for a while, make a home for him. You'll have to eat corn cakes, 325 per serving. I told you he's not there anymore. He's applied at UC Berkeley, I think. Marijuana cookies, then. Two hundred. You will not listen. Margaret, promise me something. What? That you won't go unless he agrees to it. But... Promise. She studied him for a moment, for she never knew if he was teasing her, patronizing her, or simply lying. But now he looked deadly earnest, so she nodded, saying, All right, all right, that's no risk. What about Jade, then? asked Valerian. What about her? She can stay as long as she likes. She thinks she's working for you. Let her work for you while I'm gone. Oh, dear. Or just relax. She wanted to spend the winter here is all. Why, I can't think. Getting over an affair, I thought. At her age, it takes three days, not three months. You don't like her anymore? I love her, but I'm not going to give up going back with Michael just to help her cool off for another month or two. Besides, look what she has to go back to. What? Everything. Europe, the future, the world. Why are you frowning? Does she need money? No, no, not that I know of. She signed on with some agency or something in New York, or is about to. There. 
She doesn't need the pretense of working for me. Valerian swallowed the last bit of egg and ham and tapped the toast basket with his fork. Clever, very clever. Jade? No, Andine. This is really good. I think she served something like this in the States. Talk about calories. You're eating like a horse already, and the day has just started. Peak. Peak. Why? The nursery stateside sent a defective order, completely ruined. Shame. Margaret reached toward her croissant, changed her mind, and withdrew her hand. Have it, said her husband. It wasn't 425, that mango. Not even a hundred. You liar. I should have known. I was going to ask Jade about that. She wants to open up a little shop of some sort, he said. You're mumbling. Shop. She wants to be a model a little longer, then open up a shop. Wonderful. She has a head. You'll help her, won't you? Won't you? Of course. Well, why the long face? I was thinking of Sydney and Andine. As usual, what about them? They like her here. We all do. She's their family, all they have of a family left. And you, you're as much family to them as she is. They've known you longer than they have her. It's not the same. What is it? What are you thinking? Nothing. Something. Sydney's very excited about that shop idea, Valerian said. Andine, too. Oh? Nothing definite. At the dreaming stage, still. Now who's worked up? It's a possibility, that's all. An attractive one for them, I suppose. That's selfish, Valerian. Perhaps, but I don't think so. I don't think so. You're worrying about nothing. They won't leave you and the situation they have here to go into the retail business. At this time of life, never. Yes? Of course, yes. Look at you, she laughed. You're scared. Scared Kingfish and Beulah won't take care of you. I have always taken care of them, and they will do the same for you. God knows they will. You couldn't pry them out of here, with or without Jade. They are yours for life. Don't snarl. Your frowny is coming loose. I'm not snarling. They're loyal people, and they should be. I've never understood your jealousy. That's just like you to call it jealousy. When we were first married, I used to have to pull you away from Andine. Guests in the house, and you'd prefer gossiping in the kitchen with her. Well, you sure put a stop to that, didn't you? I put a stop to a hostess neglecting guests. I didn't put a stop to... I was shy. But I didn't want you to turn around and be outright hateful to her. She would have quit even then if I hadn't... I know. I know, and then Sydney the Precious would have left too. Don't dwell on it. They're here, and they always will be. I can guarantee it. But you won't be. I said for a while, If Michael comes... He will. We'll see. Then it's all set? I can go? Don't push me into my last and final hour, Margaret. Let me saunter toward it. You are sweet. Not sweet. Helpless. You? Valerian Street, the Candy King, 
You've never been stronger or more beautiful. Stop. You got your way. You are beautiful. Slim, trim, distinct. Forgive her, LaRousse. Disting? Distingue. Juo Noel. Dear God. Joyo Noel, Sydney. Ma'am, did you tell the boy about the trunk? He hasn't come yet, ma'am. As soon as he does. And turkey. Andine will do a turkey. Sydney? Ah, uh, yes, ma'am, if you like. I like. I really like. I've ordered geese, Margaret. Geese? She stared at Valerian, for suddenly she could not imagine it. Like a blank frame in a roll of film, she lost the picture that should have accompanied the word. Turkey she saw, but geese? We have to have turkey for Christmas. This is a family Christmas, an old-fashioned family Christmas, and Michael has to have turkey. If Tiny Tim could eat goose, Margaret, Michael can eat goose. Turkey, she said. Roast turkey with the legs sticking up and a shiny brown top. She was moving her hands to show them how it looked. Little white socks on the feet. I'll mention it to Andine, ma'am. You will not mention it. You will tell her. Yes, ma'am. And apple pies. Apple, ma'am? Apple and pumpkin. We are in the Caribbean, Margaret. No, I said no. If we can't have turkey and apple pie for Christmas, then maybe we shouldn't be here at all. Hand me some of my medicine, Sydney. Yes, sir. Sydney, ma'am, will we have turkey and apple pies for Christmas dinner? Yes, ma'am. I'll see to it. Thank you. Is Jade down yet? Not yet, ma'am. When she is, tell her I'll be ready at ten. Yes, ma'am. Margaret Lenore stood up so suddenly her chair careened for a brief moment before righting itself. Quickly, she was gone. Everything all right, Mr. Street? I am going to kill you, Sidney. Yes, sir. Context of White Supremacy Audio segment number one, the late, great Toni Morrison's Tar Baby, published in 1981. Uh, so we are still in these uh, chapters are a little odd, but we're still in chapter one. We have a ways to go. Uh, the chapters are kind of large. So my challenge will be to see if I can find correct spots to pause. Uh, this chapter is so long, I don't even know if we'll get through the whole thing today. We will not get through the whole thing today, but we'll do our best. Uh, so still in chapter one, Toni Morrison's Tar Baby. If you have comments, questions uh, on the first bit of narrative, we're still kind of getting into the story, meeting the characters and what have you. Number to dial 605-313-51. 64 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 605 313 5164 
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We should be reading this book uh, for a few weeks. Uh, so if you have comments that you would like to email, uh, you can drop an email and we can share that way. If we have folks who uh, already read this book, I'm aware uh, Toni Morrison is immensely popular uh, around the world. And uh, a lot of her novels uh, and even some of her nonfiction is required reading. Uh, at different levels uh, of school. So if uh, we have any listeners who have already read Tar Baby, you can kind of share your thoughts, what you read before, what you're learning now. If you read it when you uh, maybe were a little bit more confused about racism and now you've been studying more so you have a better grasp, has your opinion uh, on the book or any of its characters or concepts, has it changed? This is my first time reading the book, so I am not in that category. Uh, last thing, uh, when we read Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye way back 2012, I said one of our investors said, hey, we should read Tar Baby next. And we almost did. Almost did. Um, but she said she read it and she said, hey, this book features a non-white character who's trying to be codified is talking about what to do, what not to do uh, with regards to behavior and suspected racists. And you even have a character who is uh, protesting Christmas because of racism. Now we already heard in the first little bit, we didn't even hear all of chapter one and they already are talking about Christmas and mad about what's going to be on the menu for Christmas. So we can stay tuned for that as well. But if folks have thoughts, questions, Star six one. Uh, we'll get to the first few set of hands uh, who dialed in. Uh, if you have any thoughts uh, from our first audio segment, let's see. Yes, we have you heard. Uh, greetings, Mister Demry Four. Yes, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. I'm not one of the readers who have has read this book, but I can give my uh, you know take on it right now because what struck me first was the the name uh, Tar Baby, and I guess at one time it was considered uh, offensive. But I think that uh, Tar Baby, and, you know, I think it was referring to the old uh, tale about the uh, bird rabbit and the fox and how the fox was trying to catch the rabbit. And he made a little Tar Baby, and I believe the, the rabbit touched the Tar Baby and got stuck. And, you know, that's how he tricked him. But I guess that this has some type of reference to that, I guess, later on. But one of the phrases that stuck me to was in uh, chapter one, it said, when laborers imported from Haiti came to clear the land, clouds and fish were convinced that the world was over, that the sea green 
green of the sea and the sky blue sky of the sky were no longer permanent. There's, you know, sounds pretty uh, profane if you, you know, think about, uh, you know, she uses symbolism and if she's talking about, you know, the enslaved individuals, you know, what they may have been thinking about at the time. And it looks like the setting is tropical somewhere near uh, a Dominion Republic or Haiti. And this uh, Valerian Street is uh, some rich uh, suspected racist because already you can see signs that of mistreatment to uh, Sydney and also um, let's see Sydney and what's her name Odina. Uh, I guess they were servants, and Sidney made reference to the fact he didn't have proper shoes, you know, and they both had um, bad feet where one had bunions, the other one had coins, and they were cutting them off with razor blades or whatever. So, And this guy is worried about uh, bringing his things with him. And it's strange, it's strange because his friend, the uh, dentist was exiled from uh, Haiti, I believe. And then <clears throat> he chose on his own to just come from Philadelphia to that particular area. And he's trying to transform that area, I guess, into somewhere, you know, more familiar to his surroundings by creating a greenhouse and growing flowers that's not indigenous to that area and um oh yeah the dentist refusing to help oh algeria he was from algeria and he refused to uh work on the teeth of the local blacks uh some mention of uh persian blackjack persian uh, supposedly a white man that commanded, you know, troops of uh, black soldiers early, I guess, uh, <clears throat> early part of the uh, uh, 20th century. And um, mentioned Dick Gregory, you know, he was the first black man, I believe, to run for president in the United States. And um, oh yeah, I mentioned about the coins. Uh, then the the last part of the week kind of struck me, and you know when Mr. Street told Sidney that he's gonna kill him, and he just say yes, sir. You know, I guess he's used to the mistreatment by now. But I'll mute my line and that Gus. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demery, for that last line kind of struck me as well. I said uh, it struck me for multiple reasons. One, that's not the end of the chapter, but that is kind of the end of their little uh, exchange. So that was a reasonable spot to pause and then we'll pick back up. But it struck me as well, the same reason it did you, uh, that sound. I mean, for that to be the response to someone to say, I'm going to kill you and to mention you by name 
And your total response is, yes, sir. That's how normalized the terroristic or murderous uh, talk is uh, in the Caribbean for these characters. That's another down the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm, yes, sir. Other folks who uh, dialed in, if you have comments, uh, first portion, we haven't even read a chapter yet. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, proceed. Maybe other folks are getting their comments together. Uh, I will share a quick thought or two. Uh, For one, I did kind of forget we read uh, Bluest Eye. I don't think the Bluest Eye is is a super uh, difficult book, although I've heard many folks say it is not the easiest text in the world. Uh, And I think many folks who've read Toni Morrison will sometimes say they are not always the easiest books to read, uh, the book that we're reading right, right now. Uh, we don't really have a lot of narrator uh, assistance. We read The Bluest Eye, and there was a narrator to kind of help orient you to who the characters are, more of what's happening in the story to give you more details so you can be a bit more aware. Uh, this, we're getting a lot more dialogue uh, where you're not having the narrator kind of assist you uh, you're just kind of in the story and picking it up. I guess you did get narration about the first part uh, with the ship uh, and the stowaway. But as we've moved on and we're meeting some of the other characters in the book, we're not having as much of a narrator uh, in the story to report. So it might take a little while to adjust and kind of pick up uh, on the characters, who everybody is to get oriented uh, and and in in just her writing style and how she's going to be telling the story uh, for this book, which is not super long. It is a novel. So this is not one of those, you know, warmth of other sons that we'll be reading for three or four months or anything. Uh, Let's see. I thought, or I guess let me uh, go all the way back. One, uh, the hard copy text that I have, uh, there is a preface that was not included in the audiobook. Uh, I'm not sure how that impacts, uh, you know, reading the book or what have you. I'll have to go over it again, the forward that was not included uh, to see if there are any juicy details that we missed. Uh, it's not super long. It's a page or two. Uh, she starts before the forward. This also was not included in the audiobook. Very short, it reads, uh, for, it, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 11. So that's one, 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 one. Uh, that it stuck out to me, not that I'm a, a, a Bible uh, scholar, I am not, <laughs> or even a, a Christian or anything else other than a heathen victim of white supremacy, but it stuck out because Toni Morrison's uh, given name is Chloe. Uh, and so to have this book start off uh, not only with a biblical verse, but a biblical verse that has her name in it, I thought, hmm. That's there for a reason. All of these words are, I don't know if folks have thoughts on that, or maybe people didn't even know that that was at the beginning of the book because that wasn't read for the audio book. So I'll give it to you one more time and people can think. Now, why would the brilliant Toni Morrison, why would she put this at the very beginning of the book 
For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. You can ponder on that one as we move forward. I'm glad Mr. Demery Four mentioned uh, the Tar Baby reference. That is important. It'll be coming up later. I almost felt like it would have been uh, cool to at least get through one full chapter so we could kind of say that we're in the book fully established and, and we got a whole you know nice chunk to marinate on as opposed to being so having such a little bit uh taking such a small bit into the book but tar baby is going to come up directly uh, and as mr demery for said uh that is a reference uh to some of the in my view and many others i think it's pretty standard uh racist uh I guess parables from Uncle Remus. These are stories that were told years and years ago. Uh, Disney did a movie of this, and these are some, I think, Tar Baby, and it's a bunch of these, but Br'er Rabbit and all of that is one of the racist fables that is included in that. Uh, and the Tar Baby is, I think, as Mr. Demi Four said, supposed to be this trap. Uh, and the more you fight <clears throat> the Tar Baby, you just get stuck uh, into it. Uh, and also, Tar Baby. Uh, was used as a, uh, and probably still is, used as a uh, racist slur uh, for black children specifically. Uh, and I know she, Toni Morrison, said that she chose that title specifically, and all of that is supposed to be coming up in the book as we continue, so we can be on alert for that. <sighs> Let's see. Next. Uh, the portion... The portion where they're talking about the different plants and they have music playing for the plants. I'll read a little bit of it. It says, and whatever did he think about, he thought it privately in his greenhouse in late afternoons when the heat had to be taken seriously. And early in the morning, he was there long before the principal beauty had removed her sleeping mask. He turned the switch that brought the Goldberg variations into the greenhouse. At first, he's, he'd experimented with Chopin and some of the Russians, but the Magnum Rex peonies, overwhelmed by all that passion, whined and curled their lips. He settled fondly on Bach for germination, Hayden, and can't even pronounce that one, uh, but listing all of these uh, white composers that are being played uh, for the plants in the greenhouse, no less. I think that gets joked on already to be uh, in the Caribbean, where we are for this portion uh, of the text, where you have all this heat. Uh, unless I'm misinformed, you're, you have a 12-month growth cycle. Basically, why on earth uh, would you need a greenhouse uh, unless you're trying to grow things that would not grow in this climate? I think that was already mentioned by Mr. Demery Ford. Uh, let's see. Other folks that I miss, other folks who were with us with a hand up. They're still getting their thoughts together. Let's see. Uh, the portion, and I am reading this for the first time. So I, along with other folks, we stopped in the middle of the chapter. I am not quite sure. I think that Margaret is the one I said. Now, a major portion of this book, tragic arrangement, black female, white man. I think it's the Margaret Michael uh, relationship 
unless I got that wrong in the first portion. But I think that's it, where she's waiting on him to come and make her decision about if she's going to leave and what all she's going to do, uh, where it seems like, you know, this seems like it would be set up that way uh, in some sort of tragic arrangement where she's trying to figure out where she's going to go. And she's talking about all the places that he's applying for. Is he going to be out in UC Berkeley uh, doing some sort of professorship or just globe trotting with all of his different work? That, at least to me, that sounded like, oh, okay, yeah, this would be a white man who is cool, globe trotting, definitely not a racist, uh, and is able to come down to the Caribbean and scoop up a black person. Uh, I guess I'll make sure I ask in case I got that one wrong. The folks that are reading along, was that, uh, were you all thinking that as well? Or or maybe did I miss that one, that it's it's going to be Margaret and Michael, that's going to be our tragic arrangement uh, for this one? Yes, also I thought that uh, Margaret, well, I wasn't sure about uh, who she was, but the book mentions she had manicured hands, and um, Michael was supposed to be street son, I thought. You know, but I don't know, still a little confusion there. But I noticed that um, the book mentioned a couple of characters, Kingfish and Beulah, and they were the same names of characters of a um, early black or, uh, I guess, uh, Negro um, television show where there was a character named Kingfish, and I, I believe his wife was, was doomed. So she makes references like that, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it gives them a sign of the times. And, well, he gave a reference to Tiny Tim eating goose. And so that was a Christmas reference, and that's another movie reference. Um, I can't remember the movie, but uh, where the ghost shows up for Christmas, three of them. And I think Tiny Tim was the poor little boy that uh, Scrooge uh, wouldn't pay his father enough wages. And, oh, she kept making references to Mrs. Street as the principal beauty from Maine, I believe. And that's all I have. Much obliged, uh, Mr. Demery for that's what I thought. Like I said, we are early. We haven't even finished chapter one. So, you know, we're tiptoeing into the book uh, and the chapters are kind of chunky. So, but we will get more information on this Michael dude and their tragic arrangement, how all of that goes as we continue to read. Let's see. Thomas and Neil. Yes, Doss, good evening. Good evening, Mr. Demery. Um, very um, interesting read, not my type of um, book. Um, so I'm kind of just trying to follow. I'm a little um, confused, you know, I'm a victim. Um, but I, I don't have the book, you know, this isn't the type of literature uh, that I would generally read. It's, um, you know, aesthetic, you know, literature, very, you know, well-written, but um, just, um, you know, narratives, you know, not my type of thing. But 
I'm gonna give it a chance. Um, I, 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 I had, I'm kind of lost. I listened to the whole thing and it went from um, some slaves or the boat to seems like people are free. So I'm trying to just catch up. So I'm hoping that it gets a little clearer as it goes further. And I'll meet my line. Thank you, guys. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. No problem with folks being honest. Uh, I have read books before where I have been confused. I have read Toni Morrison literature before where I have been confused. Uh, happens to uh, the best of us. Uh, and again, we didn't even get that far. We we didn't even read all of chapter one. So uh, and we didn't even get halfway through chapter one. So, you know, there sh- we should have a lot more information to grasp the novel and I totally grasp that's why I said that this is a little different this is even different from the cows because we normally do not read fiction on the cows so this is a deviation for the book club here uh, in general not just your personal reading habits Uh, and I think uh, also just trying to follow uh, along because it is uh, written in a different style as I said there's no uh, narrator to kind of direct you and give you all the background information Uh, incidentally I suspect that that was probably not an accident. You said it started off. Are we talking about slaves on a ship, on a boat? That was probably not an accident to have her echoing something similar uh, where you're meeting a character who I believe is a black male who's going to be a really important part of the book. Uh, but you're meeting him and it's, is he a slave on a ship? Is he a stowaway? It's even a little confusing about who he's going to be and what role he's going to play on the book. But I think that was uh, deliberate. But again, confusion happens to the best of us, Uh, especially apparently (laughs) sometimes reading Toni Morrison's work. Uh, Let's see other folks uh, who dialed in. uh, If we missed you totally, Uh, if you have comments, questions, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Henry in Chicago. All right, greetings, uh, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, uh, the beginning or the chapter before chapter one in regards to the uh, uh, possible black male that was on the ship, uh, uh, I think you mentioned it just a few seconds ago. We don't know if he's a stowaway or if he's, a, you know, he's an actual uh, uh, traveler or whatever, but... Reading that part, I, did, I just had a feeling of him just being alone, uh, that he was kind of lonely. I mean, he had no interaction uh, with, with anybody, one, you know, personally, even though there is mention of, of women on board. And uh, the chapter even mentioned that he's the only man. And so, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the, uh, you know, us being in the system of white supremacy uh, how they isolate us uh, as individuals, uh, and especially as, as us being men, you know, we're isolated in, 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 a, in a lot of sense uh, because of the fact that, you know, we, uh, we aren't as codified as, as, as non-white people. Uh, it also kind of reminds me of, you know, my time in corporate America, uh, you know, predominantly white corporate America controlled by white people. And, you know, just me being like, one or you know few you know one of the few non-white you know especially non-white black males uh, within corporate America that feeling of loneliness and that's what I kind of got from that from that particular chapter um, the interaction between uh, between the uh, the streets 
uh, the husband and the wife was, was kind of interesting, especially when they talking about their son and, uh, the, uh, the man was talking about, uh, his son, who well, I'm assuming they're white. Uh, so if I'm, if I'm wrong, please correct me, but I'm assuming that they're white, but they was talking about their son, uh, being away. And, and I guess he was making a joke about, you know, him being part of the Cherokee nation or something like that, or being part of another tribe. And that kind of reminded me of, uh, Elizabeth Warren, suspected racist, uh, you know, trying to trying to be Native American so she can get some kind of benefit, <laughs> take away benefits from from uh, Native American non-white people. Uh, you know, her being, you know, using you know her her white power to to try to get that. And uh, lastly, uh, in regards to the First Corinthians uh, chapter eleven, verse one, verse. Uh, I think the only thing is that I, I mean, I guess the name, uh, you mentioned that Toni Morris's name was uh, Chloe, if I'm correct. Uh, maybe that she just used that because uh, I guess in the, in the, in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, uh, he was writing to, uh, he was writing to a particular uh, a group of people. And I guess this Chloe uh, person who was a female was a very influential uh female in the in the church of Corinth who Paul was writing to so uh, that's my only uh, I mean that's my only uh, uh, thing that that I can figure out so uh, that's all I have on me hmm. that's a better theory than what I had <laughs> much obliged uh, Henry in Chicago and I thought that portion that you mentioned uh, about the exchange where they're saying uh, whether or not uh, Michael's uh, Mike, I'm talking about Michael specifically, whether or not he is a Navajo or is he playing? I think, let me get that page because I highlighted that one. It says, we'll see when he gets here, ask him, ask him if he wants his mother next door to, ask him if he wants his mother next door to the reservation in a condominium. He's through with that. The school closed. He's not with them anymore. Oh, he's done the hoppies. Gone on to the Choctaws, I suppose. No, wait a minute. C comes before H. Let me see. Navajos, right? And that's why I said he goes on to talk about, oh, well, then he's going to work out at UC Berkeley and be an environmental lawyer. And they even continue the exchange I thought was good as well at the bottom of uh, the page right here. A band manager, shepherd, poet in residence, film producer, lifeguard, ought to study law. The more environmental, the better. An advantage, really, since he certainly had enough environments to choose from. And what will you do? Design no nuke stickers. I even thought that was important as well. Uh, if Michael paired up with a black female, what is the victim of racism supposed to do in this arrangement? What is your job in all of this? Uh, and I guess that's your social justice will be focused not on ending racism or seeing if Dick Gregory can be president, but no nukes. That'll be what you can do. Fight for environmental justice or something. Save, save the quails. Uh, let's see. Mm -hmm. uh, checking through for any more notes that I'd like to share from the first portion. Again, I did feel some type of way about not being able to get completely through chapter one, but these are big chapters. Uh, it would have it would have taken almost the entire program just to play chapter three, and then we would have had no comments until next week. So, trying to make as best we can out of uh, different writing, longer chapters. Uh, any of the listeners 
have any additional thoughts, questions they want to make sure they get in? Um, good evening. Again, that's um, the house of Chloe. Um, uh, I went to Catholic school. And uh, one of the things I tried to do was um, discredit the Bible. <laughs> was it, um, you know, it didn't always work in my favor, but, um, you know, I got all A's in religion class. But either way, the house of Chloe, um, one of the things I used to say is, in my Bible, it's different than your Bible because in the Christian Bible, it's the household of Chloe. In the, I mean, in the Catholic Bible, it's the household. Um but in my opinion, um, it has something to do with, um, I mean, I'm not talking about how she's using it. I, I haven't quite put it together. Um, but it has, I know that um, her people were slaves in the Bible or something. They begin with a K, but it was Corinth or something like that. But either way, the, um, I think it has to do with, at that time, in the 16th century, when they released the um, Novum Testamentum, but the New Testament and Corinthians and all of that stuff was added to it. it you had uh, um, different houses of Europe, you know, so I think it was more of them writing it, like how they see things at that time. So, you know, the house of Chloe, you know, like the house of Windsor or the house of, um, you know, the, you know, the Hagonites or whatever, you know, it's, that's what I get from it. I'm kind of trying to figure out how she's going to piece that together myself. Me too. Still learning. I'm confused about that portion myself. We might, and that might be one we might have to listen to the book uh, for a while uh, to figure out, you know, now why did she put that at the very beginning of the book? Mm. Anywho, uh, any other folks, questions, comments they want to make sure they get in uh, before we do second audio segment? I feel like we all might be a little bit more informed about the book, the characters, uh, if we can at least get our way mostly through chapter one. We won't get all the way done, but we'll be pretty darn close to being completely through chapter one. And maybe everybody will be a bit more informed about the characters and what's going on in Tar Baby. At least we'll maybe have more information about the interracial tragic arrangement situation. Anything else? Um, the, the interaction also too, with, uh, the streets, uh, the uh, white male, white white man and white uh, woman. Uh, it's kind of interesting uh, because it kind of mirrors uh, what uh, this system is—the system of white supremacy, where uh, there is a hierarchy within white people, where uh, you know the ma- uh, the man is the dominant one, and the and the female is subservient to uh, the white female is subservient to the uh, the white man, but then. You have all the servants who I'm assuming is non-white all at the bottom. So uh, it's like she, she gives us a picture of, of that, you know, of that interaction between the white man and white woman. But at the same time, we have to realize that all of the servants are non-white. So uh, we have to understand that uh, in a sense that we can't, uh, we're not in this conflict with the white man and white woman. That's not our battle. That's not our fight. Uh, we don't have enough power to, to, to be in, in that, you know, in, in that fight. So uh, I find that dynamic kind of interesting because uh, she, uh, Toni Morrison kind of 
does that with you know with her novels of of looking at uh, looking at uh, society uh, with a particular situational story. So uh, that's all I want to add. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. White man, white woman, indispensable team system of white supremacy. Uh, incidentally. For broadcasts where we regularly talk about white supremacy being a global system, this book does uh, do some globe trotting, uh, Caribbean and Philadelphia. I think there might even be a spot where we end up in Europe for a brief bit, or at least it's going to be talked about some of the characters going uh, to Europe for something global system of racism that will be interesting to monitor uh, as travel uh, as the characters uh, are kind of traveling abroad and, and just seeing how that impacts the novel novel uh, and our understanding of racism. But That'd be one thing. Uh, and I guess uh, if I had one other thing, uh, I reckon we should be on the lookout. There's supposed to be a codified character who is speaking directly about how we should conduct ourselves with white people, things to do, things not to do. We should be on the lookout for a codified character uh, because that was one of the reasons it was suggested that we read this book anyway uh, by Cow's listeners. So being on the lookout are we seeing codified characters characters that seem like they're trying to use logic to regulate their behavior in a system of racism global uh so we will get start or continue as we resume we are still in chapter one and kind of early in chapter one uh this is tony morrison's 1981 novel tar baby we are picking up about halfway through chapter one Audio segment number two, the context of white supremacy. Beyond the doors through which Sidney had been gliding all morning was the first kitchen, a large sunny room with two refrigerators, two steel sinks, one stove, rows of open cabinets, and a solid oak table that seated six. Sidney sat down and immediately the place he took at the perfectly round table was its head. He looked out the windows and then at his wife's arm. The flesh trembled as she wire-whisked a bowl of eggs. Mango all right? she asked without turning her head. She ate a mouthful, said Sidney. Contrary, murmured his wife. She poured the eggs into a shallow buttered pan and stirred them slowly with a wooden spoon. It's all right, Undine. Lucky you had one. I'll say. Even the colored people down here don't eat mangoes. Sure they do. Sidney slipped a napkin from its ring. The pale blue linen complimented his mahogany hands. Yardmen, said Andine, and beggars. She poured the eggs into a frying pan of chicken livers. She was 17 years her husband's junior, but her hair braided across the crown of her head was completely white. Sidney's hair was not as black as it appeared, but certainly not snow-white like Andine's. She bent to check on the biscuits in the oven. What's the principal beauty hollering about? Turkey. Andine looked at her husband over her shoulder. Don't fool with me this morning. And apple pie. You better get me a plane ticket out of here, she straightened. Calm down, girl. She won't it? She can come in here and cook it. After she swim on back up to New York and get the ingredients, where she thinks she is? It's for the boy. God help us. She wants an old-fashioned Christmas. 
Then she can bring her old-fashioned butt in here and cook it up. Pumpkin pie, too. Is any of this serious? I told you, the boy is coming. He's always coming. Ain't got here yet. Then you know as much as I do. Every year the same. She'll walk on a hot tin roof till he wires saying he can't. Then look out. You can't be serious about apples. Surely. I can't be certain, Undine. Looks like he might make it this time. He's already shipped his trunk. That old red footlocker, remember? Yardman's supposed to pick it up Thursday. She don't know that. He call her and say so. Ain't been no mail coming here from him, has it? She called him, I believe, this morning, making sure of the time difference. That's what she rang you up for? I didn't have time to tell you. When's he due? Soon, I reckon. Sidney dropped two sugar cubes into his postum. I thought all he ate was sunflowers and molasses these days. Sidney shrugged. Last time I saw him, he ate a mighty lot of steak. And fresh coconut cake. The whole cake, as I recall. That's your fault. You spoiled him, stupid. You can't spoil a child. Love and good food never spoiled nobody. Then maybe he'll fly in here for sure this time just to get some more of it. No way. Not down here he won't. He hates this place, coconuts and all. Always did. Liked it when he was younger. Well, he's grown now and sees with grown-up eyes like I do. I still say you ruined him. He can't fix his mind on nothing. I ain't ruined him. I gave him what any child is due. Mm-hmm. You really believe that? That I ruined him? Oh, I don't know, girl. Just talking. But between you and the principal beauty, he never wanted for affection. Bitch. You have to stop that, Ondine. Every time she comes down here, you act out. I'm getting tired of refereeing everybody. The principal beauty of Maine is the main bitch of the prince. You worry me. Cut the fire out from under that pan and bring me my breakfast. I just want you to know I am not fooled by all that turkey and apple pie business. Fact is, he don't want to be nowhere near her, and I can't say as I blame him, mother though she be. You making up a life that nobody is living. She sees him all the time in the States and he don't complain. Visits. Visits he can't do nothing about, but he never comes to see her. He writes her sweet letters. That's what he studied in school. Letters? Poems. Don't think he don't love her. He does. I didn't say he didn't love her. I said he don't want to be near her. Sure he love her. That's only natural. He's not the one who's not natural. She is. You and Mr. Street just alike, always thinking evil about that girl. When she get to be a girl? She was a girl when I first saw her, 17. So was I. All oh, the devil. Everybody's going crazy in this house. Everybody. Mr. Street hollering about postum and putting cognac in his cup. She's hollering about mangoes and turkeys and I don't know what all, and now you denying her her own son. I'm not denying her nothing. She can have him. He turned out to be a different breed of cat anyway after he went to all those schools. He was a sweet boy. Now I suppose he'll be wanting mangoes too.
Well, he can have him if he'll stop coming in my kitchen to liberate me every minute. He means well, Ondine. What's this about the postum? He says no more diet stuff. Regular coffee, real salt, all such as that. He'll rue it. It's his life. Okay by me. It's bothersome trying to cook with all those concoctions. Fake this, fake that. Tears up a meal if you ask me. That plus everything temporary like this. Seems like everything I need to cook with is back in Philadelphia. I was just going by what the doctor told him three years ago. He leave that liquor alone. He could eat like regular people. Is he still constipated? Nope. Other people get constipated. He gets occasional irregularity, but he wants some Maalox just in case. Tell Yardman to bring a bottle out next time. He the one should be eating mangoes. Open him right up. Other than for that, I can't think of a soul in this world eat mangoes for breakfast. I do. They hadn't heard her come in. She stood before the swinging doors, hands on hips, toes pointing in, and smiling. Sidney and Andine looked around, their faces bright with pleasure. Here she is," said Sidney, and reached out a hand to hug her waist. She came forward and kissed his forehead, then Andine's. "Sleep well, sugar." Well and late. She sat down and locked her arms over her head in a deep yawn. The air, the night air, is incredible. It's like food. You weren't serious, were you? Asked Andine, about wanting a mango. No, yes, I don't know. Jadine dug her fingernails into her hair and scratched. I've got some nice liver, sautéed just right with eggs. What kind of liver? Chicken. The chicken's eggs and its liver. Is there anything inside a chicken we don't eat? Jadine, we're still at the table," said Sidney. "Don't talk like that." He patted her knee. "Pineapple," she said. "I'll have some pineapple." "Well," said Andine. "Thank God somebody in this house got some sense. That huzzy sure don't." "Let up, woman. She's got something to deal with." "So has he." "Yeah. Well, I've known him practically all his life, and I'll tell you this: he gets his way." Even when he was a little boy, he got his way. Jadine looked up. Valerian was a little boy. You sure? Hush up. Sidney wiped his mouth with the pale blue napkin. You be around all day today? Most of it, but I may have to take the boat back to town. What for? More Christmas shopping? Yep. You sure you won't have some livers? No, thanks, Nanadine. But could I have a cup of chocolate? In this heat, asked Sidney. He raised his eyebrows, but Andine smiled. She loved it when her niece called her that—a child's effort to manage Aunt Andine. Sure you can, she said, and went immediately to the nickel-plated door that opened on a hallway. At the end, four steps descended to the second kitchen where supplies were kept. And which was equipped like a restaurant kitchen. Back in the first kitchen, Sidney grumbled in the sunlight. Air conditioning in the shed, but none in the house. I swear, all that money. 
Jadine licked sweet, wet juice from her fingertips. I love it. Makes the night so much better. As soon as the sun goes down, it's cool anyway. I work in the daytime, girl. So do I. You still calling that work? It is work. Sidney sucked his teeth. Exercising. Cutting pictures out of magazines. Going to the store. I type, she said. And going to the store is a 23-mile boat trip after driving through jungle. Swamp. You better not let him hear you calling anything on this island jungle. Well, what does he call it? The Tuileries? You know what he calls it, said Sidney, digging in his vest pocket for a toothpick. L'Arbre de la Croix. I hope he's wrong, Jadine laughed. Andine entered, limping a little from the few stairs and frowning. There's something in this house that loves bittersweet chocolate. I had six eight-ounce boxes. Now there's two. Rats? asked Sidney. He looked concerned. Mr. Street and the other families had pooled money to have mongooses shipped to the island to get rid of snakes and rats. If rats fold wrappers, then yes, rats. Well, who then? Couldn't be over 15 people on the whole island. The Watts are gone. So are the Broughtons, said Sidney. Maybe it's one of the new staff over at Dovee. All Filipinos again, I heard. Four of them. Come on, Nana Dean. Why would they walk all the way over here to steal a piece of chocolate? Her niece swirled a napkin ring on her finger. Andine poured a tiny bit of water into a saucepan and plopped a chocolate square into it. Well, somebody is. And not just chocolate, either. The Evian, too. Half a case. Must be yard man, said Sidney, or one of them Marys. Couldn't be. He don't step foot inside the house unless I'm behind him, and I can't get them Marys further in than the screen door. You don't know that, Andine, said Sidney. You not in here every minute. I do know that, and I know my kitchens better than I know my face. Jadine loosened the straps of her halter and fanned her neck. Well, let me tell you, your face is prettier than your kitchen's. Andine smiled. Look who's talking. The girl who modeled for Karen. Caron, Nanadine, not Karen. Whatever. My face wasn't in every magazine in Paris. Yours was. Prettiest thing I ever saw. Made those white girls disappear. Just disappear right off the page. She stirred milk into the chocolate paste and chuckled. Your mother would have loved to see that. You think you'll ever do that again? Sidney asked her. Maybe, but once is plenty. I want my own business now. Once more they looked at her, pleasure shining in their faces. Andine brought the chocolate and set it down. She touched Jadine's hair and said softly to her, Don't you ever leave us, baby. You all we got. Whipped cream? asked Jadine, smiling. Any whipped cream? Andine looked in the refrigerator for cream while Sidney and Jadine turned to the window as they heard footsteps on the gravel. Yardman came alone on Saturdays, pulling his own oars in his own mud-colored boat with Prix de France fading in blue on the prow. Today being Saturday and no dinner party or special work to be done, 
he did not bring a Mary who, according to Sidney, might be his wife, his mother, his daughter, his sister, his woman, his aunt, or even a next-door neighbor. She looked a little different to the occupants of L'Arbre de la Croix each time, except for her Greta Garbo hat. They all referred to her as Mary and couldn't ever be wrong about it because all the baptized black women on the island had Mary among their names. Once in a while, Yardman brought a small-boned girl, too. Fourteen, perhaps, or twenty, depending on what she chose to do with her eyes. Sidney would go down to the little dock then, in the Willie's Jeep, and return with the whole crew, driving through beautiful terrain, then through Saint-Devay, saying nothing, for he preferred their instructions to come from his wife. Yardman sometimes ventured a comment or two, but the Mary and the small-boned girl never said anything at all. They just sat in the jeep quietly hiding their hair from the eyes of malevolent strangers. Sidney may have maintained a classy silence, but Andine talked to them constantly. Yardman answered her, but the Mary never did except for a quiet, oui, madame, if she felt pressed. Andine tried, unsuccessfully for months, to get a Mary who would work inside. With no explicit refusal or general explanation, each Mary took the potatoes, the pot, the paper sack, and the paring knife outdoors to the part of the courtyard the kitchen opened onto. It enraged Andine because it gave the place a nasty, common look. But when, at her insistence, Yardman brought another Mary, she too took the pail of shrimp outside to shell and devein them. One of them even hauled the ironing board and the basket of Vera sheets out there. Andine made her bring it all back, and from then on they had the flat linen done in Queen of France along with the fine. Yardman, however, was accommodating. Not only did he run errands for them in the town, he swept, mowed, trimmed, clipped, transplanted, moved stones, hauled twigs and leaves, sprayed and staked as well as washed windows, reset tiles, resurfaced the drive, fixed locks, caught rats, all manner of odd jobs. Twice a year, a professional maintenance crew came, four young men and an older one, all white, in a launch with machines. They cleaned draperies, waxed and polished floors, scrubbed walls and tile, checked the plumbing and the wiring, varnished and sealed the shutters, cleaned the gutters and downspouts. The money they made from the 15 families on the island alone was enough for a thriving business, but they worked other private and semi-private islands year-round and were able to drive Mercedeses and Yamahas all over Queen of France. Now all three looked out the kitchen window at the old man as though they could discover with their eyes an uncontrolled craving for chocolate and bottled water in his. Yardman's face was nothing to enjoy, but his teeth were a treat. Stone white and organized like a drugstore sample of what teeth ought to be. Andine sighed pointedly and walked to the door. She wished he could read. Then she wouldn't have to recite a list of chores and errands three times over so he would not forget. A red footlocker, a bottle of Maalox, the Christmas tree, thalamide, putting down bricks. But she'd be damned if she'd mention a turkey.
Chapter 2 A house of sleeping humans is both closed and wide open. Like an ear, it resists easy penetration but cannot brace for attack. Luckily, in the Caribbean, there is no fear. The unsocketed eye that watches sleepers is not threatening. It is merely alert, which anyone can tell, for it has no lid and cannot wax or wane. No one speaks of a quarter or half moon in the Caribbean. It is always full, always adrift and curious. Unastonished but never bored by the things it beholds, a pair of married servants sleeping back to back, the man without pajama tops in deference to the heat, his wife up to her neck in percale to defy it. There is safety in those backs. Each one feels it radiating from the other, knows that the steady, able spine of its partner is a hip turn away. Then their sleep is tranquil, earned, unlike the sleep of the old man upstairs in cotton pajamas. He has napped so frequently in his greenhouse during the day that night sleep eludes him. Sometimes he needs a half balloon of brandy to find it, and even then he chats the night away, whispering first to his wrist, then to the ceiling the messages he has received that need telling. And when he has got it straight, the exact wording, even the spelling of the crucial words, he is happy and laughs lightly like a sweet boy. His wife, in another room, has carefully climbed the steps to sleep and arrived at its door with luggage packed and locked, buffered nails, lightly oiled skin, hair pinned, teeth brushed, all her tips in shining order. Her breathing is still rapid, for she has just done 12 minutes of Canadian Air Force exercises. Eventually it slows, and under her sleeping mask, two cotton balls, soaked in witch hazel, nestle against peaceful eyelids. She is hopeful in sleep, for this may be the night she will dream the dream she ought to. Next to her bedroom, adjacent to it with a connecting door, she is not in this house year-round and has chosen a guest room rather than the master bedroom as her own. A young woman, barely 25 years old, is wide awake. Again. She fell asleep immediately when first she lay down, but after an hour she woke, rigid and frightened from a dream of large hats. Large, beautiful women's hats like Norma Shearer's and Mae West's and Jeanette McDonald's, although the dreamer is too young to have seen their movies or remembered them if she had. Feathers, veils, flowers, brims flat, brims drooping, brims folded and rounded, hat after lovely sailing hat surrounding her until she is finger-snapped awake. She lay there under the eye of the moon, wondering why the hats had shamed and repelled her so. As soon as she gave up looking for the center of the fear, she was reminded of another picture that was not a dream. Two months ago, in Paris, the day she went grocery shopping, one of the happiest days of her life, full of such good weather and such good news, she decided to throw a party to celebrate. She telephoned all the people she loved, and some she did not, and then drove all the way to the supermarket in the 19e arrondissement. Everything on her list was sure to be there, and no substitutes or compromises were necessary. 
major grazed chutney, real brown rice, fresh pimento, tamarind rinds, coconut, and the split breasts of two young lambs. There were Chinese mushrooms and arugula, palm hearts and Bertoli's Tuscany olive oil. If you had just been chosen for the cover of L, and there were three, count three, gorgeous and raucous men to telephone you or screech up to your door in Yugoslavian touring cars with Bordeaux Blanc and sandwiches and a little C, and when you have a letter from a charming old man saying your orals were satisfactory to the committee, well, then you go to the supermarket for your dinner ingredients and plan a rich and tacky menu of dishes Easterners thought up for Westerners in order to indispose them, but which were printed in vogue and L in a manner impressive to a 25-year-old who could look so much younger when she chose that she didn't even have to lie to the agencies, and they gave what they believed was a 19-year-old face the eyes and mouth of a woman of three decades. Under such benevolent circumstances, knowing she was intelligent and lucky, everything on her list would, of course, be there. And when the vision materialized in a yellow dress, Jadine was not sure it was not all part of her list, an addition to the coconut and tamarind, a kind of plus to go with the limes and pimento. Another piece of her luck. The vision itself was a woman much too tall. Under her long, canary-yellow dress, Jadine knew there was too much hip, too much bust. The agency would laugh her out of the lobby. So why was she and everybody else in the store transfixed? The height? The skin like tar against the canary-yellow dress? The woman walked down the aisle as though her many-colored sandals were pressing gold tracks on the floor. Two upside-down Vs were scored into each of her cheeks. Her hair was wrapped in a gelée as yellow as her dress. The people in the aisles watched her without embarrassment, with full glances instead of sly ones. She had no arm basket or cart, just her many-colored sandals and her yellow robe. Jadine turned her cart around and went back down the aisle telling herself she wanted to re-examine the vegetables. The woman leaned into the dairy section and opened a carton from which she selected three eggs. Then she put her right elbow into the palm of her left hand and held the eggs aloft between earlobe and shoulder. She looked up then and they saw something in her eyes so powerful it had burnt away the eyelashes. She strolled along the aisle, eggs on high to the cashier, who tried to tell her that eggs were sold by the dozen or half-dozen, not one or two or three or four, but she had to look up into those eyes too beautiful for lashes to say it. She swallowed and was about to try again when the woman reached into the pocket of her yellow dress and put a ten louis piece on the counter and walked away, away, gold tracking the floor and leaving them all behind. Left arm folded over her waist, right hand holding three chalk-white eggs in the air. And what will she do with her hands when she reaches the door, they wondered. Take her elbow out of the palm of her hand and push it open? Turn around and ask for a paper bag? Drop the eggs in a pocket? Each one of them begged in his heart that it would not happen, that she would float through the glass the way a vision should. 
She did, of course, and they needn't have worried. The door always opened when you stepped on the mat before it, but they had forgotten that or had taken it for granted so long they had not really seen it until that woman approached it with the confidence of transcendent beauty, and it flew open in silent obedience. She would deny it now, but along with everybody else in the market, Jadine gasped. Just a little. Just a sudden intake of air. Just a quick snatch of breath before that woman's woman. That mother-slash-sister-slash-she. That unphotographable beauty took it all away. Jadine followed her profile, then her back as she passed the store window, followed her all the way to the edge of the world where the plate glass stopped. And there, just there, a moment before the cataclysm when all loveliness and life and breath in the world was about to disappear, the woman turned her head sharply around to the left and looked right at Jadine. Turn those eyes too beautiful for eyelashes on Jadine, and, with a small parting of her lips, shot an arrow of saliva between her teeth down to the pavement and the hearts below. Actually, it didn't matter. When you have fallen in love, rage is superfluous. Insult, impossible. You mumble, bitch, but the hunger never moves, never closes. It is placed open and always ready for another canary yellow dress, other tar black fingers holding three white eggs, or eyes whose force has burnt away their lashes. Jadine's luck continued. The dinner party was memorable, and nowhere had anything begun to spoil. Like the arugula leaf, life was green and nicely curved. Nothing was limp. There were no tears or brown spots. The items on her shopping list were always there. The handsome, raucous men wanted to marry, live with, support, fund, and promote her. Smart and beautiful women wanted to be her friend, confidant, lover, neighbor, guest, playmate, host, servant, student, or simply near. A lucky girl. Why leave the show? Cable to old relatives? Write a cheery request-type, offer-type letter to a rich old pushover and split to Dominique on whatever Air France had to offer when everything on her shopping list was right there in Paris? Nothing was absent, not even the spit of an African woman whose eyes had burnt away their lashes. Jadine slipped out of bed and went to the window. She knelt on the floor and, folding her arms on the sill, rested her head on the pane. She lifted the back of her hand to her mouth and squeezed the soft flesh with her teeth. She couldn't figure out why the woman's insulting gesture had derailed her, shaken her out of proportion to incident. Why she had wanted that woman to like and respect her. It had certainly taken the zing out of the magazine cover as well as her degree. Beyond the window etched against the light of a blazing moon, she could see the hills at the other side of the island where one hundred horsemen rode one hundred horses, so Valerian said. That was how the island got its name. He had pointed the three humps of hills out to her, but Margaret, who had accompanied them on the tour of the grounds when Jadine first arrived, said no such thing. One rider, just one. Therefore, 
Ile de la Chevalier. One French soldier on a horse, not a hundred. She'd gotten the story from a neighbor, the first family Valerian had sold to. Valerian stuck to his own story, which he preferred and felt was more accurate because he had heard it from Dr. Michelin, who lived in town and knew all about it. They're still there, he said. And you can see them if you go over there at night. But I don't suppose we'll ever meet. If they've been riding for as long as the story is old, they must be as tired as I am, and I don't want to meet anybody older or more tired than I am. Maybe they're not old, Jadine thought, staring out the window. Maybe they're still young, still riding. One hundred men on one hundred horses. She tried to visualize them, wave after wave of chevaliers, but somehow that made her think of the woman in yellow who had run her out of Paris. She crawled back into bed and tried to fix the feeling that had troubled her. The woman had made her feel lonely in a way, lonely and inauthentic. Perhaps she was overreacting. The woman appeared simply at a time when she had a major decision to make. Of the three raucous men, the one she most wanted to marry and who was desperate to marry her was exciting and smart and fun and sexy. So, I guess the person I want to marry is him, but I wonder if the person he wants to marry is me or a black girl. And if it isn't me he wants, but any black girl who looks like me, talks and acts like me, what will happen when he finds out that I hate ear hoops, that I don't have to straighten my hair, that Mingus puts me to sleep, that sometimes I want to get out of my skin and be only the person inside, not American, not black, just me. Suppose he sleeps with somebody else after we're married. Will I feel the way I did when he took Nina Fong away for the weekend? He was amazed, he said, at my reaction. Weren't we always to be honest with each other? He didn't want a relationship with lies, did I? And then we made up, set the date. No wedding, just a marriage. He got rid of his old mattress and bought a new one, a new one for us to grow old on, he said. Then the magazine cover, and then her degree assured, and then the woman in yellow. And then she ran away because Reek is white, and the woman spit at her, and she had to come to see her aunt and uncle to see what they would feel, think, say. White but European, which was not as bad as white and American. They would understand that, or would they? Had they ever said? They liked her being in Paris, the schools she'd gone to, the friends she'd had there. They were always boasting about it, and it was not like she needed their views on anything. After her mother died, they were her people, but she never lived with them except summers at Valerian's house when she was very young. Less and then never after college. They were family. They had gotten Valerian to pay her tuition while they sent her the rest, having no one else to spend it on. Nanadine and Sidney mattered a lot to her, but what they thought did not. She had sought them out to touch bases, to sort out things before going ahead with, with, with anything. So far, she had been playful with them, had not said anything definite about her plans. 
When they asked her was she serious about this Reek fellow who telephoned and who sent letters every week, she pretended it was nothing, that she was thinking of going back to Paris only to get her things. There was a small assignment in New York. She would take it, and then she wanted to see about opening a business of her own, she told them, a gallery or a boutique or a... She'd looked at their faces then. Well, something they could all do together so they could live together like a family at last. They smiled generously, but their eyes made her know they were happy to play store with her, but nothing would pull them away from the jobs they had had for 30 years or more. Jadine kicked off the sheet and buried her head under the pillow to keep the moonlight out of her eyes and the woman in yellow out of her mind. When Jadine had gotten out of bed to stare at the hills, Valerian woke up. He had finished chatting to the ceiling and into his wrist the exact spelling of the message. These iceboxes are brown, broken perspective. V-I-O-L-I-A-X is something more and can't be coal note. He had sipped the brandy rather quickly, annoyed by the day's turn of events, and had lain for a while thinking how impossible it was that Unlike other men, he had been pushed into a presidency but had to fight for his retirement. Context of white supremacy. That will do it for this week. I said uh, they're not really solid spots where you can conclude the broadcast or in the the reading segment because these chapters are so chunky. I was incorrect. We did get out of chapter one. So, uh, and I do feel better. I do feel more confident with the characters. I said that before, since we didn't get out of chapter one, when the first audio segment concluded uh, that I felt like, oh man, I'm not really totally sure. Like I'm still trying to get grounded in the text. I feel much better now that we are in the chapter two. We'll see from listeners if uh, you all feel any more assured about the book now. Uh, number again is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you did not get to share at all when we did our first audio segment, if you have comments, questions uh, that you would like to contribute, make sure you go ahead and get a hand up. Do not wait until the last minute if you think you have something you would like to add to the dialogue. Uh, all the folks who had a hand up uh, were with us before. Line should be open. Uh, Thomas in New York, uh, Mr. Demery for uh, Henry in Chicago, I will have an eye on the switchboard as I see other hands. Uh, folks who dialed in to share with us, if you all have comments, line should be open. Proceed. Things stood out from the second reading. I took many more notes second time around. I'll give folks a little bit of time, see if they yes, get them. Oh, there's Mr. Demery Four. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes. Um, well, <clears throat> first thing that, uh, you know, stood out is, you know, these names. Um, you know, one of them, Yard Man, um, 
you know, it's, it's kind of impersonal. You know, it's not like he's a real person. He's just whatever he does. And, um, you know, of course, I, I believe she mentioned he can't read. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but they did make a reference to um, <laughs> Odin, on, on you know, saying that, you know, she didn't want a turkey. So I don't know if that's in uh, protest of Christmas or, you know, what her motivation is behind that. But um, they did talk about the, um, I guess, Jadine, you know, how beautiful she was. And um, you can imagine it. Uh, I think the book mentioned that she was run out of Europe. And then she mentioned that the European whites were different than the American whites. And that may be a common uh, mistake or a bit of confusion. You know, when victims don't understand that uh, it's a system, a global system of white supremacy. And you're going to run into the same things no matter where you go. And um, although she has experienced racism, she still said that uh, sometimes she wished she wasn't in her own skin. And I can interpret that to uh, meaning that sometimes she was that she was not black at all, and the system of white supremacy will have you uh, feeling defeated and uh, low self worth if you are still confused about um, what's really going on. And that's all I can pull out of right now. I'm gonna beat my line up. Much obliged, Mr. Demi Four. I think the names in this book, really, anytime you're reading a novel, the names of the characters is very important. Uh, this book, the names of the characters, very important. Yardman, all of them, very important. Uh, other folks who are with us, comments? Grand. I'll get a few of my notes in before. Oh, was that? Did I miss somebody? Yes, I'll try again. Get to some of the notes that I took. Uh, the mangoes, they talked about there being kind of a, a hierarchy, and I got some of that sense in the text system of racism, white supremacy, individuals classified as white, and then black get brag, brown stick around, that sort of thing. Uh, and they said, even the colored people down here don't eat mangoes. Means you have to be really low down on the hierarchy, bottom of the boat, uh, to eat mangoes. I personally love mangoes. Oh, but I think it was eat, eat them for breakfast. I think that was the thing, eating them for breakfast. Uh, so it seems like there's a, a, a big uh, food hierarchy right at the outset of the book. We got all these <clears throat> complaints and, and fights about what's going to be served for dinner and pineapple, apple pie, turkey, all of this. And then I don't want the mangoes. Who eats mangoes? Quite a bit of uh, attention, focus on food right out of the gate in the book. 
the white character, I believe this is Mrs. Street being referred to as the principal beauty. I think that is important, even though I think they are calling her that <clears throat> in a pejorative sense. That's kind of a joke between them. Uh, but I do think that that's names of the characters and or nicknames uh, of the characters. Very important. Uh, so they continue. Uh, they're talking. Sydney's in the conversation. And they are talking about maybe the rats got in the chocolate. They're trying to figure out there was eight ounces of chocolate. Now it's only two. What happened to the chocolate? I said, well, maybe the rats got it. He said, well, Mr. Street and the other families had pooled money to have uh, mangooses shipped to the island to get rid of snakes and rats. That is the system of white supremacy. We've already had the greenhouse growing things that aren't supposed to be here. We can pool resources and move whole species here that are not supposed to be here if we want to commit genocide on another species. We don't want the rats. So we'll move in all these other critters that aren't supposed to be here just to take care of the rats. Lots of illustrations of that is what domination looks like. I think we've had uh, Chris Kyle, American Sniper, if folks recall, he had that portion where he talked about they took the dolphins and trained them to attack. They weaponized the dolphins. Terrorize everything. Uh, continuing. <clears throat> all this is all these are notes from uh, chapter one. Uh, Ondine, I think that's how you say her name. That's what she's saying. Ondine, Ondine. Uh, side pointedly and walked to the door. She wished, wished he could reach. He's talking about yard man. Then she wouldn't have to recite a list of chores and errands three times since he would not forget. So he would not forget. I think that was important as well. What Mr. Demery Four talked about in terms of yard man, he doesn't really have a distinct name. And then he is an illiterate black male who does this, I guess whatever yard work around the house uh, and is the, the island gigolo bringing in these Marys. Uh, they don't have distinct names either. They're just all called Marys uh, after they've been christened religion of white supremacy. But uh, him not being uh, literate, I thought was really important. I'm not sure how many characters will be branded specifically as not being able to read uh, as we move through this text or any text. Uh, and I guess I'm, I'm just kind of thinking of the black male characters that have been, been presented thus far. So we got the stowaway. Uh, on the ship, who I don't think was named. Y'all can check me on that. We just started, but I don't think he got a name yet. So we got the stowaway on the ship. We got yard man. Uh, I'm missing one of the servants at the house who's complaining about the bunions and the corns. Uh, but it's the, we don't have a whole, whole lot of black male characters yet, I don't think. But they are not looking too tough. Uh, I'm not saying any of the black people, victims, are looking too great here. Uh, but at least some of the black female characters seems like they get to travel a little bit, <clears throat> have some experience or what have you. We we don't have any illiterate uh, black females mentioned uh, specifically yet. I don't think uh, just a few distinctions uh, pointed out or at least a few. What would that be? Uh, parallels between at least some of the black male characters, the few that we have so far. Uh, moving to chapter two. Chapter two. Let's see. Uh, movies. <clears throat> I think Mr. Demery Four caught Mueller and Kingfish. I think he said that that was from an older movie that he can't. Uh, he couldn't remember the name. Uh, and those names didn't even stick out to me. So I may not have even seen the movie. Um, the next movie, I guess, or film reference, they say in chapter two, they're talking about hats. The Greta Garbo hat was mentioned and they continue uh, she fell asleep immediately. 
when first they lay down, but after an hour, she woke rigid and frightened from a dream of large hats, large, beautiful women's hats like Norm uh, Shearer's and Mae West's and Jeanette McDonald's. Uh, these are old uh, white actresses from, um, what, 50, 60 uh, years. You probably call Mr. Fuller. Uh, and ask him some of these names and he'll probably be able to, oh yeah, boom, 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 and you know, whatever films uh, that they did back in their heyday, uh, as it is called, but the power of television. And I mean, this is before they weren't watching Mae West on 60 inch uh, HD screens and what have you. And you can see the power that television has that came up in the bluest eye as well. Shirley Temple, uh, the power of television then. So you can only imagine how that has uh, been magnified exponentially uh, with all of the different types of screens. And you can watch television all day long if you want to now, because you got your phone and everything else with you. Um, but uh, back to that same, uh, the, the, the beauty con game that Pan talks about the influence of seeing those white images on the screen uh, whether it's 1950 or 2050, as long as the system of white supremacy has a huge impact, that becomes your cultural reference for beauty, wardrobe, whatever is supposed to be in. Next, desirable. Next, uh, <clears throat> let's see. Oh my gosh, the tragic arrangement. I thought that was going to come through. Uh, as we continued, uh, it's lots that I could say about that. Uh, I took a lot of notes. Uh, if we have listeners who uh, chimed in or uh, called, if you were able to pay attention, things started to make sense uh, with the tragic arrangement. Uh, feel, feel free. Uh, so this is Jadine talking about her situation. Uh, she said... The woman appeared simply at a time when she had a major decision to make of the three raucous men. That's an interesting word choice. Raucous. She didn't say handsome, desirable, strapping even. She said raucous men. Particularly, that's not an adjective that I hear people when they're talking about their fiance or potential uh, spouse. Uh, And my raucous fiance, continuing, or boyfriend even, Uh, The one she most wanted to marry and who was desperate to marry her was exciting and smart and fun and sexy. So I guess the person I want to marry is him. But I wonder if the person he wants to marry is me or a black girl, question mark. And if and if it isn't me, he wants. But any black girl who looks like me, talks and acts like me, what will happen when he finds out that I hate ear hoops, that I don't have to straighten my hair, that Mingus, Charles Mingus, uh, puts me to sleep, that sometimes I want to get out of my skin and be the only person inside, not American, not black, just me. Very important passage in the book, and this is uh, early in the text, uh, so much to unpack Uh, Her uncertain, this confusion, we talk about tragic arrangements. I seriously doubt that her partner, Reek, and it's spelled R-Y-K, which I think is so funny. Pay attention to the names as we're reading this book. Uh, I don't think Rick or any other individual classified as white would be sitting around and having this conversation with themselves. Any aspect of it. You could stop before we get to that. I just want to be the person in my skin. I don't think he, Rick, is sitting around saying, uh, I guess I want to marry her, Jaden. Uh, but I wonder if 
she wants to marry me or just any old white guy. I don't think that's the conversation that they're having. Continuing, it says, and if it isn't me, do you think the individual classified as white is sitting around saying they just want any white guy who looks like me, talks like me, acts like me? What will happen when they find out that I don't do all the stereotypical white things, whatever that is? I don't think that happens uh, in a system of racism, white supremacy. I don't think that happens within the context of this book. I don't think that happens off, off these pages either. That is the essence of tragic arrangement right there. Confusion. I'm not even sure if this person really likes me or if this is and all of that would be an act of racism. If this person is not sincerely into you, they just like slumming, whether it's international slumming. I like to go slumming in the Caribbean or go slumming on the continent. A lot of that goes slumming in a so-called Asian area of the world. Lots of international slumming that happens with white men and white women that you're not really sure. Is this what's happening? Does this person really like me if they find out that I don't do all the stereotypical nigger things? I don't like watermelon. I don't like fried chicken. I don't like big earrings. Do I get disqualified then? I'm not niggerish enough for this person. I don't think individuals classified as white have those conversations. I could be wrong. Uh, Continuing. Oh, and it goes on from there. She says, uh, suppose he sleeps with somebody else after we're married. Well, I feel the way I did when he took Nina Fong, that's a non-white sounding name, I think, away for the weekend. He was amazed. He said at my reaction, weren't we always to be honest with each other? He didn't want a relationship with lies, did I? And then we made up, set the date, no wedding, just a marriage. Hmm. Kind of tacky. He got rid of his old mattress and bought a new one, a new one for us to grow old on, he said. Uh, white. Oh, let me get one more in. Let me get one more. White but European, which was not as bad as white and American, they would understand that, or would they? Thomas in New York mentioned that. I feel like I've heard that. Matter of fact, we heard that on this program specifically. I can give you the program, 2010, Sophia Stewart, mother of the Matrix. That was her explanation for Carrie Ann Moss. Isn't that the character for Trinity in the Matrix? She said she's not an American white. She's Canadian. Victim of white supremacy. VGQ from Ms. Stewart. Guest on the program 2010. That's in the archives. But oh yeah, I've heard that one all the time. Confusion is lethal. Anybody have any thoughts on any of that paragraph? There's a lot. Mr. Demery Ford already shared some of his thoughts on that. Any folks have any thoughts on that? I told you, I felt so much better after this one. Like, oh, okay, I'm into the book. I can feel it once I get a little bit more comfortable with the characters on and rolling for the rest of it. Any thoughts on, on that portion of the reading? Soon, folks are thinking the tragic arrangement is kind of a dominant theme in the text, so there will be uh, plenty of opportunities to address the tragic arrangement portion of the text. This does tend to be many folks, many victims' favorite aspect to discuss, so hopefully folks will be able to think as we proceed through the text. Let's see... I took a lot of notes in chapter two and find out some of the other portions. Let's see. The section, it says, I think this is Jadine, where she's talking about her schools. 
And she says they were always boasting about it. And it was not like she needed their views on anything. After her mother died, they were her people. But she never lived with them except Summers at Valerian's house when she was very young. Less than never after college. Nadine and Sydney mattered a lot to her. But what they thought did not. That sentence especially, I'll have different colors to switch up sometimes if I think it's a really significant event. I thought that was a very significant uh, bit of writing. Nadine and Sydney mattered a lot to her, but what they thought did not. Any thoughts on that one? Could you repeat that again, Jeff? Nadine and Sydney mattered a lot to her, but what they thought did not. Oh, yes, that's consistent. Uh, not, uh, you know, considering what they thought. Sister, I think Thomas in New York talks about white validation frequently. I think that would be a great illust, uh, great illustration. She appreciates their concern for her. She visits them. She cares for them. But what they think, especially this is in the context of a tragic arrangement, what they think about this, totally irrelevant. Let's see. I'm because it seems like unless I'm confused, there are two different tragic arrangements here. We haven't got enough information yet, but I think there might even be more than one because it seems like Jadine has got this situation going on. And it seems like there's also a situation with Margaret, one of the other characters. So, yeah, I guess we'll have to read and, and be mindful to see if there are multiple uh, tragic arrangement situations happening within the text. Uh, let's see with that. Any other thoughts, comments, folks want to make sure they touched on in the text. Can I be heard? Gus, uh, could you uh, pick up the card where she said that she was spent on, I believe, and ran out of here before? Say that again. You said she was spilling and ran out of milk. What was that? No, she was the book said she was stepped upon and that she was run out of Europe. Unless I uh, misheard. When she mentioned the African woman in the yellow dress, this big uh, event that happened, she sees this woman who's so striking and she's so uh, beautiful and she spits and she says she's, she's trying to explain why this was such a significant event for her uh, because she thought this woman was so beautiful and then to have the spitting incident that's kind of a, a rejection and then she tries to provide context by saying that that happened at the same time that she was trying to make this decision about who to marry that's when she gets into all these all the highlights that i just read uh that kind of preface because she starts and she said the uh the woman had made her feel lonely in a way lonely and inauthentic perhaps she was over overreacting, the woman appeared simply at a time when she had a major decision to make of the three, and you know, I read all that already. So, um, I think it's seeing this beautiful black figure 
uh, for whatever in in Europe while she's doing her tragic arrangement thing and getting this rejection uh, from someone that she saw to be so striking. Uh, I think it, it it stuck with her. I guess I'll have to think a little bit more about what the significance of this moment, what's being conveyed with that with that scene. What did you, what did you think? What did you think she was trying to convey with that moment? Well, the way I understood it was um, she was mistreated, and um, I don't, I don't think that they understood the imp- entire uh, impact that uh, you know this type of environment was having because mm-hmm. And these things are happening, and you say that you think whites in Europe are different than the whites in America. Well, that that's something right there that would have you to believe that it's it's much of the same thing. So it it just seems like confusion to me. And then one time when they were uh, describing you know, how desirable, I guess, the woman in the yellow dress, they were saying that some women might want to sleep with her or make love to her. And then it was a a mention in here when she was talking to her uncles about uh, some of the men, and he said that they were uh, faggot, like... (laughs) I don't know, I forgot to, I can't see the, can't find that area, but it's something like they were, I guess, faggoty. They did. My head. You, you are like one page ahead. Uh, for listeners, Mr. Demery Ford is, is not uh, saying things that we didn't read. He is one page ahead. We stopped about uh, a page or two before we got to that section, but that is going to be like the probably the first 120 seconds of next week's section. Bang, exactly what you just said. Okay, thanks, Vince. Uh, but it just leads to this, you know, they they go in there to another place with this, uh, you know, with the same sex and the uh, the references to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That that scene, I guess we can we can ponder on. I suspect it'll be one that's mentioned again or some sort of uh, allusion to the woman in the yellow dress. I thought it was striking, too, that her her dominance, the the power and beauty uh, of this uh, African female, I think, is shown uh, not only in, in the vivid description and how much of an impact that it had on Jadine, but also uh, the whiteness. Uh, she comes into the store to buy eggs and chalk white eggs and she doesn't even buy the correct amount. They, they say that you're supposed to buy, I think it's a, a dozen or a half dozen and she doesn't even do that. She has so much power that she can buy three chalk white eggs and it's no problem. She pays her money and walks out of the store and then spits it uh, Jadine. Uh, but any any other folks with thoughts on, on this, this moment, uh, what the, the woman in the yellow dress represents and or the tragic arrangement?
if folks are still adjusting, I totally grasp sometimes Toni Morrison. Not the easiest thing to read, but I think it will get easier. Um, I felt that even today, just getting into chapter two. So hopefully it'll be a little bit easier. Might be one of the uh, one of the books to maybe have a hard copy uh, so you can kind of read along as we are reading the text, if that will help minimize some of the confusion. I do think uh, as we get into the book, though, as we start to get a little bit more comfortable with the characters and, and the narrative as we've kind of met everybody and know, you know, the arc of the story a little bit more, I think it'll be much easier. And hopefully with all the uh, cowbell that's going on in the book, uh, it'll be entertaining enough that we can learn, study as we are going. Again, reading this, recognize... Thomas in New York, I think. Uh, actually, it's Henry. Oh, in Henry in Chicago. Whoops, sorry. Oh, okay. Um, just just a couple of things. Um, uh, the conversation with, uh, I guess, uh, Odin, uh, still in the uh, first chapter, where uh, she says, uh, uh, when she was referencing Michael, the son, where uh, she says, "Well, he can have him." if he'll stop coming in my kitchen to liberate me every minute. Now, that was a pretty interesting statement considering, you know, white people uh, like to come in and be the saviors of, of non-white, especially non-white black people, uh, i.e. Tim Wise, uh, i.e. Uh, Jane Elliott, those type of uh, people uh, to come in and tell us about racism and, and get twenty uh, twelve thousand uh, dollars for their appearances um and uh yeah i agree with you in regards to uh jay dean and uh her uh, confusion she is a victim um it was interesting the statement that you had mentioned uh i wonder if the person he wants to marry uh it, it, i wonder if the person he wants to marry is me or a black girl and you know that 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 goes to say that you know most likely this uh this racist uh, just wants to marry a black girl so he can, you know, have gutter sex with, you know, uh, a black woman. Um, also, too, uh, I think uh, Mr. Gimbry Ford uh, mentioned about the statement about uh, uh, white Europeans not being not as bad as uh, white Americans and, you know, in the system of white supremacy, uh, all white people uh, are the same. Uh, there's no uh, who's worse than the other? It's basically they're they're kind of all the same, and uh, I think you also touched on the uh, uh, the issue of Jadine uh, being you know her loneliness, and I kind of connect that with that with the first uh, the the chapter that was previous to the first chapter of Stowaway, uh, how you know how alone you know like when I read it. Uh, I felt, you know, I felt a sense of loneliness for for this guy because he just he didn't never interacted with anybody, uh, even though there were people there, and it seems like Jadine was in the same situation, even though she was went to a supermarket but didn't really interact with anybody or, but then when she tried to interact with the African woman, she basically spit on her or you know in the in that type of manner. So, uh, yeah, there, there there seems to be a connection with this you know, being alone uh, with these two characters. Uh, so uh, that's all I have on my life. Mm, very interesting. Loneliness. I think she she mentions being uh, lonely. Uh, the character does uh, in that very passage. 
And uh, well, we'll have to hear more. So we're so early in the book, we, we have kind of forgotten about the stowaway black male uh, from the very beginning of the text. So we'll have to hear more about him. But he certainly was by himself, isolated. So we'll have to see how that unfolds as we continue to read. Uh, did any other thoughts, questions, folks want to get in uh, before we wrap up session number one, Toni Morrison's Tar Baby? We'll assume folks are good for this week. Uh, we should be here tomorrow for workplace racism, uh, neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, quite a bit to review crying in the workplace. <sighs> we'll come up tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Uh, in addition, if folks had a week to think, any suggestions, tips, uh, if you are being uh, barred, prohibited from using the lactation room, if you are a mom and are breastfeeding your child and they won't let you use a room specifically designed for that reason, we have any folks who have tips uh, to help rectify that problem. Neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, tomorrow evening dash afternoon. We'll be here Saturday for the compensatory call in as well. Uh, much obliged for folks uh, listening in. Uh, hopefully, we will be able to learn quite a bit uh, as we make it through Toni Morrison's Tar Baby. We'll be back next Thursday. Sobriety would be best for victims of racism, white supremacy. We had some alcohol talk in the text as we were reading this week. Sobriety would be best. Uh, let's keep our brain computers working in optimal conditions so that we can go about the business of solving the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. In addition, let's be off the cell phone. Had to say that a lot off the air this week as well. Let's not be on our cell phone if we're behind the wheel. Uh, let's try to do as much as we can within our limited power as victims uh, to minimize the terrorist influence that Daniel Pantaleos can have in our lives. Just not being on the cell phone, just trying to cut down that contact, cut down that risk as much as we can. With that, uh, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us Remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.